Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Dowrick. Hello, Ben. Howdy, Gabe. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two twin movies about terrorists hijacking a plane, and the only person who can save the day is an unlikely hero. It's Executive Decision versus Air Force One. Let the hijacking begin. The air-to-air docking. The Air-to-air docking. I like it. I don't know. I like it. Uh, yeah, mm, maybe. Anyway, I mean, they're, that, they're not that unlikely once you consider who's on the poster, really. I mean, Harrison Ford and his pointy finger, fairly likely. <laughs> All right. Let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. Way back on the 15th of March, 1996, Executive Decision was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. When terrorists seize control of an airliner, an intelligence analyst accompanies a commando unit for a mid-air boarding operation. Gabe, did you originally catch Executive Decision when it was released at the cinema? And how was that experience? Uh, I didn't. I saw this on VHS. Um, probably in 1996 or 1997. Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't really remember much about the experience because it was so long ago. Although the 90s, man, you said, you, you, you sort of said in your little intro there that this was ages ago. I still think of 1996 as just a decade ago. So I don't know. I'm, I'm all out of whack here in my brain. But I've got this on Blu-ray. I've seen it a whole bunch of times since. Um, so all of those viewing experiences have mushed together. <laughs> what, what about you? <laughs> Actually, it's funny because you talk very fondly about watching films for the first time on VHS yep. and particularly how you experience them on that 4 by 3 ratio. Oh, yes. I'm thinking back in 96, 97, I would say probably half the movies had the black bars at the top and bottom to keep it in the right ratio on our 4 by 3 CRT on, TVs. On VHS, you mean? No way. Yeah. No Is way. It? There's only the occasional, like, wow, you could rent heat, heat in letterbox format. Whoa, what's that? And then your mum would be like, what's wrong with the television? Why is there all those black boxes? I didn't pay for 76% less ratio. <laughs> I do recall watching Pulp Fiction with black bars, but that was an exception to the rule as well, I think, because the film was so critically acclaimed, won Oscars, and the true you know, a purist wanted to see it in a time before Criterion. Actually, did Criterion ever do VHS? I have no idea. When did Criterion, like, um, form? But, but, but... I don't know. But I feel it should have actually been a company back then doing true ratio VHS tapes. But, I mean, Laserdisc might have existed back in the 90s. Ah, you're right. Yes. It was It was much less, I don't know, I, I was going to use the term ubiquitous, but I don't even know if it was ubiquitous in the US, but I didn't know anyone who had Laserdisc. So maybe you could have watched Executive Decision in a sweet widescreen aspect ratio on Laserdisc, but not me. You saw a good old VHS. Um, little segue, I saw my first Laserdisc, I think around 1995, maybe 96, and it was Speed. And this was at someone's house, was pretty affluent, and they had like the best and latest TV, amazing surround system. This is probably the start of, um, you know, like people really investing in like Yamaha subwoofers and speakers in the corners of the room and so on. It was a dedicated cinema room. And I remember watching Speed, having never seen it at the cinema, but watching it for the first time on Laserdisc at the house. 
and I was just blown away, particularly by the sound. I recall the sound being better in that person's room than at the cinema. And then after that, I went to just sort of watch all of my favourite films on VHS, and I can never go back. I tasted that sweet, sweet, pure aspect ratio with quality sound, and I was spoiled forever. You were like, I'm only ever going to watch movies on a 24-inch television from now on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Luxury. Yep. So as for me, I actually caught Executive Decision in its true aspect ratio in HD yesterday. What? Yep, before this podcast. Come on. Somehow I didn't see this at the cinema, and it's odd because this was back in 96. I'm at university. I've got plenty of time on my hands. I'm not getting free movies at the cinema because pre my experience working at the art house cinema and getting reciprocal freebies, but it was a time I saw films like Twister and Species. Classics. And those types of movies. And I saw all of those. So for some unknown reason, I didn't see this one. I'm not sure how, but even more remarkably, I hadn't actually caught this film. I haven't caught this film on Friday nights or Sunday nights throughout the years on TV in Dreams of Drabs, like I have with plenty of other movies. Like Twister, for example, I saw at the cinema and it played all the time on TV as well. And I must have seen that cow flying through the air and that barn taking off a million times. But somehow this film just didn't get the same kind of replay value on commercial TV, which really surprised me because it actually is a bit of a crowd pleaser and has quite a few recognisable faces and is pretty accessible. That's... But maybe it was a rights issue or maybe it just didn't rate with people as well. Wait, wait, a rights issue? Like I don't know. Like, I'm just- Like, you didn't have the right to watch it or like- <laughs> No, no, no. Like, maybe for some reason it wasn't actually licensed as much in other territories. But, but, but I mean- I'm surprised because it does feel like a bit very re-watchable film. I mean, Ben, if only there had been like a, a shop uh, that was uh, popular in the sort of late 90s and early 2000s where you could go there and rent a movie- um, like a place that might actually um, be very easy to go to and have videos. Yeah. It might be called Video Easy, for example. Maybe, perhaps, perhaps. But so, so you- Or have blockbusters you could hire and watch after they'd been in the cinema. Exactly, exactly, if only. So you watch Miami Vice for the 94th time and you could have just watched Executive Decision once. Yeah, true. Uh, and probably Heat for the 95th time. That's right. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, look, I'm glad you, you know, finally uh, arrived here at 1996. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, smartass. Um, th- What's next? The other shame is that you actually had spoiled a major detail. I recall writing a screenplay with you like over 10 years ago and you spoiling this part of the movie, which we'll get to. We'll also wait till we get past into our review where we're talking about ways to catch catch the audience off guard, like something which they totally wouldn't expect. And then you sort of like dropped this truth bomb on me. Wait, wait hold on, hold on. I, I spoiled a 14-year-old movie. Is that what you're saying? 24-year-old. <laughs> what do you – no, no, but like you said 10 years ago, so. Oh, at the time it was 14 years. Yeah, true, true. That's right. Yeah. What, just, just, just before we go, what do you think is the – can you spoil a movie one year after it's – like where is the fair game bit? Like if you felt a little like, oh, man, I can't believe it, Gabe, you wrecked that thing. Like what, what's fair? Are we talking 20, 20 years, Ben? Like, Yeah, okay, okay. Let's, let's tease this out. Okay, so I'm thinking that in the spoiler game – so spoilers have become a thing where people now declare it before they move into their spoiler, you know, part of the review – for a podcast or whatever, or in a blog on a film news site because news is everywhere and people can share through social media 
and the internets, mm-hmm. anything, anywhere. So I'm thinking that basically spoilers became a problem around probably, I reckon, definitely after 2000, maybe around 2005 when social media started becoming big, that you could share spoilers anything. So I think that because everything is being spoiled all of the time, doesn't mean that we should therefore go along with that and we should try and hold our own. Hold the line, like Braveheart style. Sure. Hold. Sure. Hold. But Ben, so, just give us the dang number. One year, five years. What's what's fair game? Like what what can I spoil for you? Okay, it depends like, on the movie. It depends on the context. If you come to a podcast reviewing movies like this right. on the Twin Movies podcast, you've got to expect that's going to be spoiled. If you're like Jimmy, was it Jimmy Kimmel? I think you once told me an anecdote where Jimmy Kimmel in an opening monologue actually spoiled a movie or was interviewing a guest or something. Was it the guy from The Birdcage? What's his name again? Oh, I think I think we said Nathan Lane on, I don't know, Letterman or something, spoiled Sixth Sense while it was still in cinemas. I agree, that is not cool. Yeah, so that's a case where it's an interview with an actor on a very accessible free-to-air TV show, which isn't necessarily a dedicated movie or review show, and he's kind of spoiling out of context. That's bad. I reckon that if it's something like a dedicated podcast or blog and you give it a little heads up at the start, you can spoil something from yesterday. You can say, I'm about to spoil uh, 2019's N. Night Shyamalan film Glass. And then we've got a chance to press stop or stop on their iPhone or Android phone or just exit the blog and not, not see it. So I think it depends on the warning before the spoiler. You can spoil something from yesterday. If you get head, give a heads up. I think the problem is not getting the heads up. It's, so it's actually about the warning, not the time since the film was released. Okay. So I'm sorry, Ben, that I didn't provide you with an in-person spoiler warning. <laughs> it uh, didn't have to be in person, but that would have been nice as well. Okay. <laughs> like drive across to my house and like just. Oh, yeah, get- actually. I mean, that's the other thing. I do just drive by your house yelling out. That's right. Uh, uh, it's like John Cusack with a with a huge stereo, just apologising. <laughs> a drive by spoiler. Wolverine <laughs> dies at the end of Logan. Suck shit, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this image of someone who's just like just totally anti authority, driving around a car with huge stereos, just yelling out, yeah. sp- like playing spoilers throughout the throughout the neighbourhood. I love that. Ray's parents is something. I didn't actually see that last Star Wars movie. So I was going to try and yell a spoiler for that, but I don't actually know anything about it. Like, um, uh, uh, what's 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 that great actor who's completely wasted in it? <laughs> All of them. Um, uh, oh, John John Bottega? Yeah, he's wasted in it. Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac. Yeah, all of them. Wait, anyway, look, let's let's move on. Let's get let's go. Yeah, let's not evoke the wrath of the internet. <laughs> uh, Star Wars, awful. Uh, also, too, I think spoilers are based on how much you're invested in that film or TV show. So Totally, totally. If it's a film that's critically acclaimed and the spoiler is really good, you're less likely to want to spoil it. If it's like a really terrible, disposable, mockbuster movie and no one will see it and the film isn't very good and the spoiler is just terribly inserted, nothing set up before, it's kind of like a cheap get-out-of-jail day ex machina. Totally. Then I reckon it's open to being spoiled earlier. Totally. And with less warning. Totally. Look, I, I I should say I still haven't seen Summersby from 1993 starring Richard Gere and I just do not want to know how it ends. So I would just really appreciate it from people if they didn't ruin Summersby for me. Thank you very much. All right. Well, in that case, I'll <gasps> definitely also not spoil Maverick oh, sh- with Belle Gibson. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
Don't tell me what Mel's been doing in the last 15 years. I don't want that spoiled for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spoiler for behind the scenes of actors' real lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't want to know. Anyway. All right, let's move on. Um, later on, on the 21st of July, 1997, Air Force One was released. Here's the synopsis from IMDb. Communist radicals hijack Air Force One with US President and his family on board. The Vice President negotiates from Washington, D.C., while the President, a veteran, fights to rescue the hostages on board. Gabe, talk me through when and how you first watched Air Force One. I definitely saw this one at the movies. I think I probably went with my dad um, or some other father figure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a lie. I definitely went with my dad. Um, Who was also a father figure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That's right. Um, uh, yeah, saw this at the movies for sure. I mean, come on. Like Harrison Ford fighting Gary Oldman, you know, ah, couldn't miss it. I don't remember much about it, uh, but I definitely saw this at the pictures. Did you? No, I did not. Oh, don't tell me this is another one you just saw. <laughs> not quite, but kind of. I've just realised now, having psychoanalysed myself and explaining why I didn't see either of these movies at the cinema, it's because in 1997 I started doing film studies and I was into auteur cinema making. I was into auteur, auteur films, Euro cinema, independent cinema. The mid to late 90s was like that huge kind of peak in indie American movies. And I think it was rejecting a lot of mainstream movies, which doesn't quite make sense because I was a huge fan of seeing The Rock, Con Air, uh, movies like that at the time. I think I just found that. I think looking at the poster and knowing that Steven Seagal was in one film with Kurt Russell, two classic kind of macho American dudes, and then we had like the all-American action hero Harrison Ford in another movie. I must have just been turned off and thought they were too mainstream and I was just too above that. Wow. <laughs> I pity that period in your life, Ben. But, again, it doesn't make quite sense because I did actually see Species and Twister and Independence Day and so on at the same time. So, no, you know, my reasoning wasn't sound. I wasn't consistent with my snobbery. No, no. You're just a huge Helen Hunt fan. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but but anyway, so, so how long did it take you? So the reality was I saw this on TV and I think I saw it on VHS. Right, okay. And I think I saw this through two different sittings, but I didn't actually see the whole movie from start to finish until I rewatched it for this podcast. Wow. Well, that must have been very nice because both of these movies rule and um, it must have been great to be able to sit down and watch them. I often talk about I wish I could watch movies again for the first time. Now, neither of these movies would be top of that list, but, uh, you know, to re-experience the, the, the twists and turns of executive decision or Air Force One again, oh, what bliss. Well, I've got to say, and I've said this before, this podcast has made me revisit movies that I didn't see at the cinema or even see at all because I thought, oh, that's going to be too similar to the first movie that's kind of similar, the other twin movie that came out earlier. Or it was at a certain point in my life when I was doing, I don't know, cinema, you know, European cinema studies or I was just too busy in life, had a couple of kids, whatever it might have been. Stuff was going down and I didn't get a chance to see the movies at that time. Um, often it was based on reviews and it turns out the film was actually better than the you know, review average score I saw at the time. Mm -hmm. So I actually really like that this podcast series is kind of like taking me back to points in my life and just sort of like, you know, ticking off those missed opportunities. It's like, you know, my bucket list for movies. 
but earlier than, you know, way earlier, I hope, before than when I actually die. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. So impending death, you've got to crank, crank in all of the classics. Is that what you're saying? But not me because I'm doing this week by week with you. So no, that's right. by the time I get to the very end, it'll be okay. You know, I saw executive decision and I can now die at peace. Excellent. Goodbye, Ben. <laughs> well, I'm still here. Oh, sorry. But let's jump into a quick history lesson, okay. shall we, before Good. we do a review. So how do we get here? Um, well, look, these films are similar but they're not similar and perhaps that explains why there doesn't seem to be much of a link about the origins of these movies. So I did a bit of quick research online, as I always do before the recording, and these two movies are classic examples of movies in the 90s that you just can't find much about as to how they originally started. They're not old enough to have this cult following where people have written books about, you know, the making of Dr. Strangelove or The Shining. They're not critically acclaimed enough to deserve that same sort of academic analysis. And they're not young enough that people have been recording the behind-the-scenes production schedule, you know, on some sort of online blog or social media account. So there doesn't seem to be much at all about these movies um, to say. Um did you find anything of any interest when you did your little bit of research into how they both came about at the same time? No, I just uh, suggested we do these two uh, movies because they're both about uh, plane hijackings. Do we need actually much more than that? I don't think so, Ben. Well, that's good enough reason for me. Actually, they are more similar in watching them than I initially discovered. Did you find the same thing? Well, weirdly, because I've seen these movies a bunch of times, there's this plot point in them, right, which is that the... The, the hijacking terrorists want their leader released. Um, and in Executive Decision, that's Jurgen Porch now or whatever his name is. And in Air Force One, it's, I don't know, some bloke. Um, and Isn't he the guy who has the one arm in the Harrison Ford? Oh, it is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Anyway, but in, and both, it's, the, that scenario is weirdly similar. And in my head, I keep smooshing them to it's like a, a he's like a, a fancy man, and then he's like uh, released, and then he gets like gunned down as he tries to run across like a little. Uh, it's weirdly similar, weirdly similar. Yeah, I mean, what's even more interesting about it is how they choose their stakes or their target for the ransom or the hijacking. So, in Air Force One, they're choosing the biggest chip you possibly could, the President of the United States, and that's a a huge deal. I mean. Like, it seems almost totally out of proportion for the person they're trying to get freed. I think they could have actually perhaps just taken a, a regular plane. That probably would have been enough, you know, collateral damage to threaten with. But they've just decided to basically minimise risk and just go for the president of the US. And, of course, the US government, based on that, will release their – he's a general or something, isn't he? The terrorist leader. Anyway, he's, he's a fellow – Yeah, that's right. He's, he's the, the terrorist – equivalent, so to speak. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a fair point you you make. But, um, you know, why not go big? Well, on that point then, because that's kind of like a key difference between the two movies, um, knowing that these films basically seem to come into existence independently without much connection but share that very common premise, let's start with our review of Executive Decision. So, Gabe, did you like it? What didn't float your boat? And was it a good execution of this common premise we just discussed that it shares with Air Force One. Uh, big fan of this movie, Ben. Uh, that's the end of my review. Excellent. Oh, sorry, you want a little bit more. Uh, Thanks for everyone tuning in. Uh, okay, where can people catch you on social media this week? <laughs> Fast podcast is a good podcast. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, 
the 90s, man. I just really like these types of, you know, uh, high concept, diehard on a plane, rip off, great cast, um, you know, lots of practical effects, um, rousing score. It's just, it's just real nice. It's like comfort action. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. I mean, before we continue, um, the practical effects bit, um, we've talked before about how many recent films lean too hard into CG and now we've got this sort of wave with TV shows like The Mandalorian or the three recent Star Wars films where they're basically kind of going back to some practical effects and then uh, adding CG. So they're both kind of CG and practical working hand in hand. That's kind of where we've evolved to. But this was the inverse of that where we were coming from practical and they were augmenting it with CG, with computer-generated effects. And even though it's not always seamless, I think it's definitely better than what we got in the late 2000s or you know early 2000s where it was just all CG and looked so unrealistic with no sense of gravity or uh, place. Yeah, that's right. And, like, I think I guess that's a really nice distinction because the, the drama and the thrills in uh, both of these movies are about what's going on in the plane or the tension around that, not sort of cutting outside the plane for, like, jet swooping. I mean, there's obviously a little bit of that sort of stuff. Um, uh, but, you know, not, like, big, I guess, I don't know, macro or super objective action sequences where things are all CG. You know, like, I don't know. It, it just feels like one of the great things about both of these movies is, you know, the strength of the, the casts and the drama that they you know, uh, have there as opposed to, yeah, sort of big empty action set pieces. So it's really nice. It's really nice seeing that. I mean, you know, you still got docking sequences and scenes where jets take missiles for the, for the, for the, for the plane or where that, you know, scoots along the runway and skids and things like that. But some of the scale of that is fucking awesome too. Like, I don't know. They're just, 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 just nice. Just real nice. Well, they're using real planes. Yeah. Or they're using, one-tenth models. Little models. <laughs> but they look good and they shoot them in the right way, in a very sophisticated way. And, you know, we've seen how models work in films going back to Star Wars in 1977. And if you execute it well with the right camera speed and the right kind of size of the flames and so on, it looks fantastic. Mm. Mm. Well, what about you? I mean, you watched Executive Decision for the very first time. Were you... Did you enjoy the film? Yeah, I agree with you. There's just something about this era, and we've waxed lyrical about it before, but there's just something about the Don Simpson time, the guy who coined that phrase about high-concept movies, which is a movie you can describe in just one sentence in a logline, in a little sort of sentence on the poster, or even if the, you know, the, even if the title is the actual pitch of the movie. And these films, and we'll get to Air Force One in a second, but both these movies do that, like... It, they're just well-executed, crowd-pleasing popcorn movies that have the right sense of scale and scope. And I think we like these movies so much, Gabe, and we have said this before, but it's worth reiterating. I think you and I both like these movies in the 90s because it kind of ticks all the boxes that we value. So it's the right combination of practical effects and CG. But at the core of it, it's about these are – Ordinary people in extraordinary situations. So it's a human with like human skills and not superpowers who's in a, an experience that you and I could transplant ourselves into and imagine how would we 
deal with this? How would we overtake the terrorists? How would we try and MacGyverish some sort of um, solution when you need to communicate from inside the plane to the jets outside? Like, there's a sense of it all being possible. It's mm. close to impossible and it's unlikely, but it's possible. Whereas after that 22-year or 22-film run of Marvel movies, which I all enjoyed, there's just that sense of exhaustion, like, yep, okay, what are the stakes? There seem to be no stakes because now people can like crush entire galaxies in their hand. That's that's a, that's a scale we're at now. Yeah. And yeah. going back to these movies, it just sort of reminds me it's closer to my world. Like it's so ridiculous that I would say that, that how could Executive Decision or Air Force One be close to my reality? But <laughs> because cinema's just pushed out the parameters of realism so far in the last 15 years, then – these films just feel so grounded in comparison, excuse the pun. No, totally, totally. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think very well put. Um, and, I mean, I think a lot of that is also, yeah, just a tribute to, look, both of these movies, just f- fantastic cast, well written, you know, like it really feels like the screws are sort of tightening and, yeah, no one punches a torpedo out of the air. Yeah, that's right. Or as we've discussed before, when the rock sort of steers a torpedo off the ice. Oh, sorry, yeah. that's, what I, that's what I meant, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, um, tell me, what do you think about um, the twist? Should we do a spoiler now for executive decision in relation to what happens to one of the key characters? Oh, yeah. So you better warn people, Ben. I know this is having talked about this earlier i don't want to all right so spoilers for executive decision from 1996 24 years ago gabe why don't you quickly just set it up for the viewers who haven't rewatched this movie okay so steven seagal plays lieutenant colonel austin travis great name uh who's the head of this commando unit um who is basically set up as like the most badass guy in the movie right kurt russell's sort of a more nebbish bookish type of fella um, so kind of playing against uh, ca- uh, casting, right? Totally, totally, totally. Uh, he's, what range, Kurt Russell? What range? Um, so Kurt Russell's sort of recruited to go with Steven Seagal's commando force, and while doing the sort of air-to-air, uh, what would you call that? Uh, docking. Docking. Yeah, docking. Uh, Steven Seagal's character is in fact killed. What a twist, 27 minutes into the movie or whatever it is. Wow, how are they ever going to do it without Steven Seagal? Um, and I should point out, at this point in his career, Steven Seagal was still relatively cool. So we're four years past Under Siege. It was 1992. Uh, and Yeah, that's right. So he's still- Under Siege was like one of the most successful diehard clones. And that film was A, an awesome film, and B, rode those coattails of that type of, you know, uh, guy set in a- uh, a, natu- a guy who's an ordinary guy with some skill set in a location where terrorists are trying to overcome something and he has to try and overcome them one by one. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I think you're, you're right. Like the, the, the expectation that Seagal will save the day. Um, personally, I'm a huge fan of Detective Gino Fellino, Out for Justice, Stephen Seagal's masterpiece. But, yeah, it, it was definitely before he, you know, really hit the absolute nadir of just being a pants-shitting, awful, barely there, not really participating movie guy, uh, Russian stooge. So, so yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, it's a great moment. It's a great moment, right, when he gets sucked out of the 
the the the docking tube. Yeah, it's totally unexpected, uh, and he's not wearing a parachute, so he implicitly dies. <laughs> <laughs> he's not wearing a parachute. I think originally um, they wanted his head to explode. Have you heard this? Yeah. Well, do you, why don't we save it okay. for behind the scenes? Because it's actually something even more disturbing than that. We'll get, we'll oh, get to that. Wow. Yeah, okay. We'll get to that. But well, let's just, exciting. what I'll do is put a little pin in it right here. But I can tell you before we explain later on is that he was meant to be the hero throughout the movie and something happened off screen, which resulted in him being killed. Oh, really? So we'll get to that. But wait, what? Wait, wait. Do you miss? Wow, okay. Spoil well, it now? No, no, no. Like, no, okay. no, no, no. Well, you, you've, got, you've got me. Uh... Do, do we spoil the podcast now? <laughs> no, wow. Now I'm going to have to listen on. <laughs> yeah. So. At the time, it was implicitly sold as being an intended surprise that you'd set up the character. And people sort of referred to more critically acclaimed films like Psycho, where Janet Lee dies, what, 20 minutes into the movie as well? Sure, sure. But, you know, when Psycho was released, that was absolutely unheard of. And then even after Hitchcock's Psycho, it was still really unusual that you'd actually hire a star actor and then kill them off early in the movie, partly because the reason you're getting them is to actually you know, sell the movie and it can come across as a bit of a cheat to the audience and a betrayal of their expectation as to who's the protagonist they're meant to follow. I think this movie works because at the very start of the film, they set up Kurt Russell as the hero. I mean, they have a total um, Chekhov's gun where they show him landing his little light plane at the start of the movie. And it's like, oh, he's got plane skills. That's not his main job, but yeah. this will come in handy surely later on. No doubt. No <laughs> doubt. What if they had actually just set him up and he's like making the best omelette and you're like, well, I don't know how this is going to pay <laughs> off, right. but I bet it will. <laughs> <laughs> Please somehow just like throw it in someone's face and then try and grab that's control right. of the gun. So I I think that's a nice touch that they give it to that character and you then lean into the importance of the other characters like John Legismo and the guy who played volleyball in Top Gun, whose name escapes me, but like it's kind of quite odd because John Legismo, I didn't realize was as famous then or was in big movies. I knew him as the guy from, uh, uh, he played the guy in um, Moulin Rouge. Do you recall that role? Yeah. Yeah. He's great in that. Things aren't always as they seem. Things are exactly the way they seem. Kristen, you may see me only as a drunken, vice-ridden gnome whose friends are just pimps and girls from the brothels. But I know about art and love. If only because I long for it with every fibre of my being. She loves you. I know it. I know she loves you. Yeah, and Romeo and Juliet. But for me, I always knew him from Romeo and Juliet in 96. Romeo! The love I bear thee can afford no better term than this. Thou art a villain. <coughs> this film comes out at the same time, which is a bigger budget movie, and probably he would have been seen by a larger audience around the world. But I was surprised actually to see him this early in his career in a blockbuster. Anyway, he basically takes over in some respects to the role vacated by Steven Seagal when he gets sucked out of the little docking tube and dies. Um, but it works for the movie. I mean, the movie doesn't suffer at all. And then you, I think, invest more into Kurt Russell. I think as a result of losing Steven Seagal's character, they have to become more like a team because even though Legismo kind of steps up and takes down that role of leadership, 
he's really working hand in hand with Kurt Russell, right? As opposed to being ordered by the pretty intimidating character that has been set up by Seagal at the start of the movie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess it's a fairly a relatively common-ish trope these days. Whenever you see someone super badass played by an actor and they're given like the and or with credit, you're like, they're not making it to the end credits. They're definitely going to die to prove how badass the bad guy is, right? Yeah, totally. Or you know there's going to be a cameo scene like when you see a film like <clears throat> The Expendables and it has and Arnold Schwarzenegger or someone like that. It's like, okay, yeah, he'll be there for five minutes, but he's clearly not leading the movie. I, I guess the difference here is that, um, is that it's not like David Suchet uh, kills him. In fact, this movie, the greatest threat to Steven Seagal is... Um, air pressure or, f- or or screws that come undone. <laughs> Actually, there is a version of this film where had off-screen shenanigans not happened and he was in the movie still, it would have been quite interesting because his character is set up at the start as not being betrayed by the intelligence that Kurt Russell and co. have provided for his mission at the start of the movie that sort of sets up the cold opening, but there is a sense that he feels let down by Kurt Russell and can't trust him and can't trust his judgment. And had Stephen Seagal's character, you you know, Colonel Austin Travis, stuck around, you would have felt there's possibly a chance where he might not take a bullet for Kurt Russell. He might throw Kurt Russell under the bus um, or there'd be more tension in them forming an uneasy alliance. Love an uneasy alliance. I know you love it. And so... If they were perhaps in opposition and arguing about the right strategy and then eventually they save each other's bacon and then with a gun each stand back to back (laughs) and go forth and overcome the terrorists, putting aside the differences, that would have still been, I think, a good movie, but I like the movie that we have. That's right. That's right. If I want Kurt Russell teaming up with a... Uh, another action hero who survives to the end. I just watched Tango and Cash. Check the whole truck, asshole. There's nothing in it. And you're out of your neighborhood, big city boy. I want your badge. I want your weapon. I want your ass. Who in the fuck do you think you are? He thinks he's Rambo. Rambo is a pussy. (laughs) Hey, tell me, let's get back to that question as to if if this movie is a good execution of the common premise. Uh, what do you think? Do these terrorists, these characters, have a good plan? And are the stakes that are raised throughout the movie and the way that they use the plane's geography and uh, flight attendants and pilots and so on a good version of doing that story? Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's interesting. They, you know, they they call all of these movies like Die Hard on a plane or the Die Hard scenarios, and they they, they also do that thing where it's like the um, the terrorists have a plan, but it's not the actual plan. You know, David Suchet, who plays Hassan, wants uh, the one-armed man released. Uh, but in fact, that's not the end of his plan and he's hiding his real plan from even his men. Uh, it's not gold like the uh, like Alan Rickman's character in Die Hard, but it's interesting that they sort of recycled that idea as well. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, I love the way they... Uh, Use the plane, uh, where the way Halle Berry's character has to be the sort of like inside woman. Um, I think it's really great. Like, hey, just just a correction, by the way. Oh, sorry, yes. 
Wasn't Alan Rickman after stocks or something? It was actually oh, yeah, Jeremy Irons who was after iron in Die yeah, Hard yeah. 3, Die G- with a Vengeance. G- Jeremy Irons wants all the gold in Fort Knox. Um, but, you know, like that's, I, I guess what I was just saying, is there's that thing where the, 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 the villain ostensibly has one plan but it transpires that, in fact, they have another Um I love Joe Morton, you know, their bomb disposal guy getting paralysed. How will they possibly do it? You know, Oliver Platt. Um, it's just great. I think the whole thing, you know, it, the movie takes its time to kind of set, set, set everything up. Um, this is the, the rare over two-hour movie that I think is, you know, worth it. Um, the, uh, it, Before you move on, we should just mention that it does uh, B plots and C plots really well. Mm. Like you mentioned before, Oliver Platt and Joe Morton. So Joe Morton plays Cappy, who's one of the soldiers who's paralysed and therefore has to instruct Oliver Platt <clears throat> to be his hands in disarming the bomb. And to me that's just a great example of taking the odd couple combination which we see in the A plot with Kurt Russell and some of the soldiers, and then just sort of like totally. reflecting it in the B plot. Mm. And what's the thing that a bomb disposal expert must have? Hands, steady hands. And he doesn't have that because he's been paralysed temporarily in the mm. onboarding of the plane. Yeah, totally. So what a great idea to bring up Oliver Platt, who's the thinker but not the doer and has to basically be his hands and then Joe goes from being the doer to the thinker. It's a nice little reversal of characters, and that gives a lot of tension, I think, happening when it's sort of cut to throughout the movie to give you a break from what's happening upstairs on the plane. Yeah, absolutely. And I think everyone gets a little great moment, you know, like you said, John Leguizamo, who sort of becomes the de facto leader of the the group, to the point of he even gets to be the guy who kills the main villain, Um you know, B.D. Wong, um, J.T. Walsh, man, as Senator Mavros, who I guess is, you know, uh, kind of, is he taking the place of uh, Ellis in Die Hard? You know, <laughs> Hans, booby guy. Is, is he <laughs> yeah, sort so- of that role, I guess? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, um, but, yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. The whole sort of subplot about trying to find the guy who has the remote detonator, trying to figure out who he is on the plane. Um, I mean, you're right, you could have... You could have just stuck hard to a kind of A plot and made it Passenger 57, I guess, or something like that, um, <clears throat> which is just shorter and more to the point, also has Halle Berry in it. Um, but, yeah, no, I think it's I think it's really great. Um, and, and, look, I said it before and I'll say it again and I'll definitely get to it with Air Force One, but it's just a great cast, you know. They've really cast good actors in this. Yeah, I agree. And also not only good actors but you seeing the side character as well. Mm. So Halle Berry's character reminds me of the cop character in Die Hard where it's someone, in this case, she's on the inside and Kurt Russell's on the outside is in the undercarriage of the plane trying to get it up into the plane. But she, he has his insider, which is kind of similar to how you have that dynamic between the cop in Die Hard on the outside who's sort of like that one connection that Bruce Willis's character has to the other world, mm. that's well done. Had you know that character, I think you'd feel a bit dislocated from what's happening on the plane. But you need someone to be both providing intelligence to him down there but also a hero of her own. Like she, what she's doing is risking her own life, this character, um, and putting it all at risk when everyone else is just basically sitting down quietly and not making a word. She's taking a chance, save the whole plane. It works really well. By the way, side note, Marla Maples... Donald Trump's second wife 
is playing the other flight attendant, which is oh, oh the one who is murdered, the the one who dies. No, no, the one who survives. Oh, yeah, we'll get that perhaps in casting, but um, bit of stunt casting there of the time, I think, kind of reflects the era. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, should also say that I think David Suchet, uh, for all you uh, Poirot fans, um, really takes his role as the bad guy seriously and it, like plays it ultra straight, right? Like it'd be easy to ham it up and we'll get to that when we get to Air Force One in terms of like hammy villains, but he does not do that. He almost goes in the opposite direction, right? And I think it's a really effective choice. Yeah, he is... Really good. He's really good. I agree. Like he takes it very seriously. He it feels like he's in a in a Bourne film. Yeah, like the Bourne supremacy or something like that. Like uh, maybe it's the British accent which helps, but he is not hamming up at all. Um, actually, on that point, because it, it's a, it's interesting contrast to Gary Oldman's portrayal <laughs> in Air Force One. Um, Shall we change lanes to our review okay. of Air Force One? Or okay. do you want to? Yeah, no, no, no. Let's, let's, let's. Any, any other final points to make about executive decision? No, no, I'm sure they will come naturally as we compare and contrast. Uh, All right. Okay. Then let's jump across to Air Force One. Uh, Gabe, what did you like? What grinded your gears? And did it do a better version of the same concept than executive decision? I would say I think I like both of these movies equally. Air Force One, though, is bigger dumber, sort of much more patriotic, heroic, sillier, funner, I don't know, uh, hammier. I mean, we were talking about the cast of Executive Decision. How about the cast of Air Force One? God damn. Um, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a rousing good time. I mean, Wolfgang Peterson knows how to direct a movie. But again, Ben, I want to know, I've seen this movie 25,000 times. You watched it for the first time. How it, Peak Harrison Ford, I don't believe you couldn't have seen this, but what did you think of it for the, you know, as, as a fresh, fresh viewer? You know, at the time I also recall being reluctant to see it at the cinema because it seemed to be taking the goodwill he had from those Tom Clancy movies and then just parlaying it into Air Force One as the same character but not the same character. So I think I was a little bit cynical about that. Like, if you watch those Tom Clancy movies, it feels like the eventual evolution of that character is to become president. I think in the books, does he actually become president? Ah, I don't know. But it makes you think, doesn't it, that in the same way they took a script and repurposed it for the film I mentioned earlier, Die Hard 3, Die Hard with a Vengeance, could easily have taken this here and made it a Tom Clancy character Sorry, um, a Jack Ryan, Jack Ryan, the protagonist, as a character, and it would be based on a Tom Clancy pre-existing book, but still work, wouldn't it? I think, and correct me if I'm wrong out there, Tom Clancy fans, that in a book named Executive Orders, huh, Tom Clancy becomes president. But anyway, interesting. I mean, you're right though. It is the sort of natural action, you know, uh, end point for Harrison Ford. Um, but come on, like. 1990s, he's so kind of all-American. He's a choice to be who, what actor could play the president with a type of classic gravitas. Who else would you have picked in the 90s? I mean, he's like the absolute, he'd be the first, last and only. You know, at the time, I recall the reviews being quite critical of him being too old to do action movies, but everyone would agree that he was the right age to play the president. So Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on. In 1997 they were saying he was too old. To play an action star. That's right. <laughs> wow. 
but he was the right age to play the president. So he had aged into the character of a president, but to be said of swinging punches and, you know, doing high shenanigans with parachutes and so on was a bridge too far. And if you look at, say, a few films like um, great behind-the-scenes shots of Samuel L. Jackson in Captain Marvel, that Marvel movie where they've CGI'd a younger face onto him, but he's kind of hobbling around as the 75-year-old man that he is. And there are some scenes we watch Harrison Ford kind of like running down the corridor with that weird run he has. He has a run that's as distinctive as Tom Cruise does, albeit much slower, but he has this, <laughs> he has this gait that is quite right. off, off his age. He isn't, you know, of a fitness level. Or he, you know, he, you know he, I'm sure he's got washboard abs, but he's moving like a man in his, I guess at this stage, mid-50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that being a criticism in the reviews which also would have turned me off. But, look, I agree with what you've said before. I think let's start with this idea of what makes a better version of this common premise. And this is total 90s where you go, how do we up the stakes it in every way? Okay, not only is it a hijacking of a plane mm-hmm. to try and then free these hijackers elsewhere, so they free these terrorists elsewhere, but what is the plane with the highest stakes possible what is the most vulnerable, the most uh, significant ransom target in the world? Mm. Ah, the US president. So I love it. It just leans into that. Like the audience is on board from the start of the movie with those sort of stakes at at, at large. So I like that. Um, I like there's a few nods to older movies. Like we saw before in Escape from New York, this whole idea of the presidential escape pod. Oh, yep. Yep. You know, this whole idea that if something's going to, a plane's going down, you just eject this little space pod that resembles something like one of those lunar um, landing modules that comes out of when a rocket returns to Earth and it parachutes down to the water. And then it was actually, in more recent years, picked up again in that Samuel L. Jackson movie, Big Game. Same idea. You sort of eject the president out in some sort of safe little safe and he lands somewhere and everything's fine. So I kind of like love it, like that little nod to that particular movie early in the genre. Um, it's interesting because I think setting a, pl- a movie on a plane from the very start risks being really static. Like there's two aisles, one on each side. You've got a bit of cabin luggage space downstairs. You had a cockpit, toilets, but there isn't really much room to move. And I think the risk of doing this type of movie is that it could just feel too claustrophobic, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but they cut enough to those exterior shots uh, and have a few little beats like, for example, the plane goes down to land and then takes off again and there are a few fighter jets outside that gives you enough sense of scale so that the film feels big mm. and um, doesn't feel claustrophobic. I guess you've also got all the drama uh, on the ground with Glenn Close's vice president, Catherine Bennett, you know, dealing with... Uh, the situation of the the president having been taken over, and who will also assume control of the United States in Harrison Ford's absence? Um, yeah, you're right. The first film executive decision doesn't cut to those decision makers as much. It tends to sort of like split it between Halle Berry uh, actually on the plane, the guys downstairs, you know, in the cargo hold trying to get in. And then a little bit to the guys on the ground making decisions like the generals and so on. Whereas this one much more is cleanly 
delineated between on the ground uh, with Harrison Ford and then with the hostages mm. or hostages slash terrorists. And I never was bored for a moment. I just went with it the whole time. I like the surprise, spoilers, for Air Force One in 1997. I like the surprise, though, where the pod escapes from the plane, it lands, they open it up, and no one's inside. Like, if you hadn't, I, I felt that was coming, but it's a nice little nod. And I think you do believe in the story that Harrison Ford is a veteran. I mean, we've had enough US presidents who have been veterans of war that you go along with that. Uh, well, not only that, he's a Medal of Honor recipient. He's the best of the best of the best, you know. He Yeah. So you buy him, even though we talked before about an ordinary man in extraordinary circumstance, this film's a twist on that. So he's not John McClane from Die Hard. He's an extraordinary man being the US president and he has, I guess, more extraordinary skills being an award-winning, award-winning? No, that's not right, a lauded veteran. But I think we're all like him in this time. Like he stays on board for his family, for his wife and daughter. So he becomes an ordinary guy. He's, you know, figuratively um, stripping away the veneer of being a US president. That's right. And just being an ordinary dad trying to save his wife and his daughter. And then That's right. we all identify with that as the audience. And I think it's a really clever way to do it because you get the best of both worlds. You get the stakes that he's US president, but then it grounds it by making him an ordinary guy. Father first. That's right. That's right. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on uh, Gary Oldman's performance? <laughs> well, uh, look, I'm here for it. I I like it a lot. I think... You like choices. You like big acting choices, don't you? <laughs> oh, mate. And and look, in the 90s, there was no shortage of those from Gary Oldman. Um, I, I, I think his performance as the villain is what sort of tips it into a much more sort of I guess, heightened in comparison to executive decision because it's huge, right? Like, it's it's huge. The accent, the yelling, it's, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I love it. It's so great. It's big. I mean, you, you mentioned before the performance uh, in executive decision by, what's his name? He played the- oh, David Suchet. David Suchet, whatever it is. Yep. David Suchet. So David Suchet is playing- a very serious terrorist like he's in a much more serious film in Executive Decision, which I find goofier, and it's the inverse in Air Force One. Gary Oldman is big in what I'd call a comparatively more grounded movie. What do you think? Yeah, that's interesting. I Comparatively. Because think about F, uh, Executive Decision, right? It has the stealth bomber, which is a bit of a gimmick in the movie. Like it's, you know, like mm-hmm. we're bringing in like this high-tech plane, which is rarely seen and used, and they try and then attach that with a tube underneath the plane flying at who knows how fast, 600 kilometres per hour, to then board through this little tube into the plane. Like it's more unbelievable than Air Force One, which is, you know, a regular plane with guns and that sort of thing. But I feel the performance of Gary Oldman heightens the movie like you said. That's my take. Yeah, yeah. I mean- Surely they saw him in The Professional or something being a huge can of awesome ham there and were like, yes, just bring that bring that energy. I mean, the, the 90s for Gary Oldman in hammy performances was just amazing. Um, but I, I guess it is kind of cartoony. And half the time while watching it, I often think to myself, especially when they get, you know, the he plays a Russian terrorist and then they cast a bunch of actual other, a, co- a combination of 
sort of a few Russians and non-Russians. I always think to myself, what do the guys who actually speak Russian think of it when they have to act alongside someone just absolutely chewing the scenery with in in their language in a way? Would you be like, wow? <laughs> Probably the same thing that the English actors thought with Kevin Costner's performance in Prince of Thieves. <laughs> oh, you mean they loved it? Yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's exactly um, what I meant. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. I mean, totally. Um, uh, what, I mean, what, what, what do you think? Did, did, did his performance work for you in this? Did you like it or did you think it tipped the... Okay, brace yourself here. Brace yourself. Oh, you're going to break my heart, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to break your heart. So I want you to grab the velour armchair you're sitting in and just squeeze the arms okay. to anticipate my critique coming up. I, I am squeezing. I don't think Gary Oldman's a very good actor in many movies. What did you just say? What did you say? What did you just say? Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Here, here's what I think. I think whenever Gary Oldman acts, I see him acting. Now, if you're on board with that, then it's fine. But... I never believe Gary Oldman as the character. I just see Gary Oldman doing versions of Gary Oldman and I reckon that there's some sort of spectrum with Nicolas Cage at one end, right, mm-hmm. and David Strathairn at the other. <laughs> okay, that's an interesting choice for your guy who, okay, all right. Then I reckon in the middle you've got Gary Oldman. Uh, I just think that he is too big and I see it. Now, I'm not saying that he, that's not right for all the movies he's in, and I think he's fantastic in The Professional. I find his accents to be the most annoying thing. Like where he's utilised best to me is films like The Professional where the character's drug-affected so it works or uh, uh, what's that Tarantino film with Christian Slater? I've just absolutely blanked. Oh, True Romance. On True Romance, same thing. Like... Um, he works really well in that film there. What else has he been in of note? Dracula. Where, oh, of course, The Fifth Element, right? Oh, amazing. So The Fifth Element is a highly stylized movie with really um, heightened performances. He's one of the best things about that movie. Where I don't get on board the Gary Oldman train when the film was more grounded. Now, look, this is a ludicrous premise, this movie in Air Force One, but I think the intention is to be more of a grounded performance. And this to me sort of feels like a very 1990s caricature of a of an antagonist or a terrorist. Oh, definitely. I would definitely. love to see David Suchet, who plays the terrorist leader from Executive Decision, in this movie. Interesting. That'd be like a really good kind of mashup of those two. Um, and I really like the performances by the criminals in films like The Born Identity, for example. But this feels closer to, to use the analogy with the spy movies, something from... James Bond movie. Mm. It's very heightened over the top. Um, in fact, Harper's just the accent, I think. Like, <laughs> I'd like just to see either the character speaking Russian the whole time or something like David Suchet, where he actually has a British accent, which implies that he's bilingual and probably been educated in Britain, which is a very common story here. Mm. Um, and then you'd get some sort of sense as to, oh, okay, um, he's a multinational travelling character mm. and you know like what a skill like most Americans don't aren't bilingual and have their mm. expertise and then you have this extra respect for him that he's like particularly smart in that regard that's what I'd like to hear or see yeah well I think I think you 
made an interesting point there. It's like Gary Oldman obviously plays a, a very wide range of weird characters. You know, no one would look at Drexel Spivey or whatever the name of his character in True Romance and go, oh, that's the same character as Zorg or Lee Harvey Oswald or Dracula or Russian terrorist guy. I can't remember his character's name in this. Or the character he plays in The Contender, you know. Um, but Harrison Ford, on the other hand, basically plays Harrison Ford in nearly everything. And, I mean, he is amazing at playing Harrison Ford. But he kind of underplays. Like Harrison Ford as an actor, you know, there's a, there's a really a really funny story I heard about Air Force One, which was that the writer, Andrew W. Marlowe, you know, um, was had written this great speech for Harrison Ford's character and he was really nervous and he gave the pages to um, Harrison Ford and Harrison Ford read them and said, oh, you know, this is a great monologue but I think I'll just do it with a look. And it's like one of the most famous things actors often say to screenwriters, right, which is like show, don't tell. Like I don't need to say it, I can do it visually and the audience will get it. Totally. And Andrew Marlowe was like, and and he did, you know, Harrison Ford could just do that with look. I don't believe for a second that Gary Oldman wouldn't want to deliver that monologue. <laughs> I reckon, <laughs> you know what I mean? I reckon Gary Oldman would be like, give me all the monologues. The more monologues, the better. I just, you know. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Um and, and and I like performances that are more like that, that are more visual and nuanced and trust the audience. Not me. Not me. I have zero trust for the audience and I like performances that are self-conscious and huge. So um, I feel like in Air Force One there's something for everybody. <laughs> I think you're right. Okay. Um, any final thoughts about Air Force One? Um, any other performances, plot holes or, you know, bits of ludicrous action? Um. I mean, we talked about it in Executive Decision, but damn, the cast of this isn't amazing, right? Like every scene, just someone's popping up and you're like, God damn, Dean Stockwell's just turning up here or, um, you know, uh, uh, Paul Guilfoyle. And we'll get to this in the awards, so I don't want to hit it too too, too hard. But uh, I, just, I just love these well-made 90s movies, you know. There's none of that shaky cam business. The cinematography is just really nice and clean. Um Oh, it's just, it's just comforting. I also love like little details too with uh, farewells to criminals. Like in this era, this was just about probably five, ten years after those Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone movies, where the protagonist would do a quip oh, yes. as someone dies. You know, it's like a final farewell, and it used to be a callback to something that was said earlier. Uh, perhaps taking the catchphrase of a criminal and throwing it back at them as they die in some sort of ironic way. There's something similar in this movie. I recall it in the trailer at the time, which turned me off seeing Air Force One. But that part, and again, spoilers for Air Force One from 23 years ago, <laughs> but the scene where Gary Oldman's character is strangled when uh, Harrison Ford just rips the parachute which caught around his neck and it kind of like snaps his neck and sucks him out of the plane. Like, doesn't he say at that point, get off my plane? Get off my plane. Get off my plane. <laughs> That's the Aussie version, is it? Yeah, Force One. <laughs> but like, you know, that was like one of those trailer moments I recall being played over and over and over. And it was one line that kind of captured the essence of the movie, like it was American patriotism and ownership of Air Force One and 
at the end of the day, no one's going to stop this character, this hero, this president, and particularly, you know, this Russian terrorist. And it just ha- it's a classic 90s beat, like the just the crescendo of the final act um, was well done. So, And then what I also like about that is that's not the end of the movie. They still get the guys off the plane, um, which is great. And, you know, what better, more exciting, dangerous part than having the high stakes of the zip line going from the Air Force One plane through to that rescue plane? Like, it's great. Like, it looks real as well. It's been shot. I think it's been shot probably with stunt actors and looks like they're actually doing it in the sky or something looks very close to it. Um, it's just a well-done movie where the stakes keep increasing, increasing, increasing just when you think it's over. And the best example I can think that's similar to this is Con Air, <laughs> where the plane crashes at the end and you think it's all over. And then there's this final chase scene with Zyrus the Virus played by John Malkovich and Nicholas Cage has to like chase after him, you know. Oh, on the top on, of the fire truck. On the top of the fire truck. Like it's just like it's like just one more beat of action. Um, it just gets you revved up. Yeah. If you didn't think a, a plane was big, what about just a fire truck in a tunnel? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's awesome. It's just awesome. All right. Let's tie a Bonnet review. Uh, any notable similarities, be it a coincidence or ripoff, between these two movies that surprised you? I mean, every time I, like I said before, I always forget how similar the, the villain's plan is and- I mean, die, they're diehard on a plane that will die hard in a, you know, but I, I love it. I love it. Um, I mean, beyond that, nothing really, nothing nothing particularly. What about you? Did, I mean. No, I, I agree. It's really just the terrorist plan that's remarkably similar, but the execution as to how the heroes trying to overtake the plane isn't particularly similar in any way. Uh, how about the age of these films which film has aged better do you think they've, i think they've both aged really well like you could you could throw them on and and not they not feel dated by anything you know they don't they don't star yeah i think they're just it, they really hit that period like you said where they're just sort of classic classically made movies you know they're not right on the edge of really yeah like i watched spawn the other day nice uh, and god damn there's some CG in that that has just aged so awfully I love how you say you saw Spawn and then it's like a <laughs> sort of like a third party perspective you comment on what you've done uh, I saw Spawn the other day nice nice <laughs> it's like uh, no need for me to add that you've already got that covered yourself nice anyway <laughs> I love that sense of awareness <laughs> they, you know me Ben I'll, I'll watch anything twice uh, I can tell you some of that. I watched Bats starring Lou Diamond Phillips the other day you know? Oh wow, you're really working through the uh, 2000s, aren't you? Pretty good, pretty good. I watched the Wishmaster movies and Ben. Oh, because I'm sure I'll forget when we get to the cast. One of the, the the guy who plays Wishmaster, the the guy who plays the Dijin, is in Air Force One as a villain. Oh wow! <laughs> Save it for the review. <laughs> oh, no, I've already, I've already, I've already soiled my soiled my Dax. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you also blend. Soiled as more <laughs> a polite way rather than shitted, and then no. with Dax rather than pants. I don't know. Look, I wouldn't you <laughs> shit, shit your pants or no, shit your Dax or you saw your pants. Well, yeah, and I don't even know if that's the right metaphor because I probably should be more like jizzing than shitting. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I degined everywhere in my pants. Thank you, Wishmaster. Anyway, <laughs> um. Yeah, I agree. I think they've aged really well. 
I would love to have some sort of retro cinema. I, I wouldn't say art house. I'd say retro cinema, one screen, maybe take over one of those abandoned cinemas that's failed because it only has one screen. Or maybe do like a sort of like low-key rustic outdoor movie cinema, like a drive-in, and play 90s kids. And you and I would be the ones running it, right? And we'd be like, it'd be like when we were younger, people would say, oh, have you seen Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, you know, and people would have their own little Euro indie cinemas. We'd be the 1990s high-concept Hollywood cinema and we'd invite the kids, the 13-year-olds, young kids, and say, before Marvel, kids, there was Don Johnson and Jerry Bruckenheimer-style American action movies. Come on in. It would be the Pied Piper of uh, 1990s action cinema and educating everyone. Yeah, don't be a loser. On the choice. Don't be a loser and go to an art house theatre and watch some old Ozu movie. That shit's for losers. Yeah. Come and watch a fucking sweet 1990s action movie. Why why would you watch three hours of Baraka stoned? Oh, nice. Actually, we can put that on. Would you watch Uh, Air Force One? That's fine. We can... We, we can be a, a cinema of multitudes, Ben, if uh, <laughs> watching Baraka Baked is part of that. That's totally cool. All right, let's move on to the trivia, some behind the scenes. So I alluded to it before. What was the alleged reason why Steven Seagal kind of was ejected um, 25 minutes into the movie? So I thought it was just a genius screenwriting touch. You'd led me to believe that. You believed it yourself. I think that was actually the pitch at the time. Totally. Well- as is the case, movies get older and people come out and sort of share some behind the scenes more candidly once the press tour is finished. Well, apparently during the mid-90s, uh, rumours of sexual assault and domestic violence started to circulate around Steven Seagal with his ex-wife coming out and accusing him of beating her. So the rumour was <coughs> that Kurt Russell refused to work with Steven Seagal for that reason and that was the reason why Seagal's death scene occurred early in the movie. And that's why he's also not listed in the opening credits. And that's also why he was dropped from the poster. And then they instead uh, expanded the character of Rat, played by John Leguizamo, as the character to take over the rest of Seagal's actions in the script. See, I, I believe all of that, except for the poster part, because I know Seagal was on the poster when this came out at the cinema and stuff. And I think it was just later, 10 years later, you know, when Seagal's uh, sort of uh, luster as a movie star had waned so much that he was actually a negative, you know, um, that they pulled him off the poster. Um, well, it's funny you say that because apparently in most territories he wasn't on the poster, but he was in Australia, I think, and Indonesia and Germany and the Netherlands and also on VHS. Right. See, according to IMDb trivia, there's a, a couple of, you know, there's the originally Travis uh, was to die due to low cabin pressure and his head was going to explode. So the question there would have been, I think that was going to happen then later in the movie. Uh, um, or maybe that was going to be his early scene then and then they thought that was too harsh. But you're right. I mean, that does seem very unusual. Apparently Stephen Seagal was totally against it. But the idea of his head exploding Seems a little bit out of character for the tone of this movie. T- yeah, totally. I think in retrospect, perhaps Steven Seagal, uh, though I'm sure his battle was won over ego, uh, it probably is better, right? I mean, 
no, no one else's head explodes in this movie. Yeah, exactly. It would have been totally out of context. Like, as it is, even the bullet shots aren't particularly graphic at all. Like, you don't see yeah. massive blood bursts or anything. It's all pretty tame. Um, the other interesting thing about this is that this movie, Executive Decision, was originally developed at Paramount Pictures, but the studio put the project in a turnaround and sold to Warner Brothers in exchange for the rights and screenplay to Forrest Gump. Wow. Yeah, because apparently Executive Decision was considered a hot project, while at the same time Forrest Gump was going through multiple problems with the script and the casting. And some of the Warner executives were afraid that after the success of Rain Man in in 88, sort of about you know, eight years before or six years before Gump would come out, it would preempt Gump due to the perceived similarities of the project's subject material in that both the lead characters have mental disabilities. So interesting trade-away because Forrest Gump was an absolute smash and Executive Decision was not. Wait, which character in Executive Decision has a mental disability? No, Warner Brothers were concerned that Forrest Gump would be too similar. To executive decision. To Rain Man. To Rain Man. Ah, yes. So they traded it. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, The other thing was, a bit of behind the scenes, is that you mentioned a few times Steven Seagal's character, Austin Travis. Well, the origins of that name are derived from the city of Austin in Texas, which is located in Travis County. (laughs) Oh, right. Okay. So so clever. (laughs) Um. Halle Berry originally said no to this movie, but came aboard for $1 million. Really? Wow. Yeah. So she worked with Joel Silver, I think he was the producer, uh, on The Last Boy Scout and then returned for this one. Nice. Nice. She's good in this movie. Yeah, I think she's really good. Very good. Um, also, a little nod to Kubrick. Apparently one of the characters references the communicator as the CRM-115. And in Dr. No, they refer to a similar communication device as a CRM.114. I don't think that the audience of those two movies are very similar necessarily. Wait, <laughs> wait, Dr. No, like the Bond film is also? Or do you mean Dr. Strangelove? Oh, sorry, Dr. Strangelove, my mistake. Uh, yeah, CRM. Dr. Strangelove, CRM. Now, moving across to Air Force One trivia, um, apparently the director, Wolfgang Peterson, was denied access to the real-life Air Force One as part of research. But Harrison Ford picks up the phone, makes a call, and the White House agrees to let everyone have a tour. Yeah, of course, as if you wouldn't. I mean, who- Yeah, totally. I mean, if Harrison Ford calls, you say, you say yes, right? Exactly. Who was president in 1997? Was that Clinton? I think it was, yeah. Or was that Bush? No, it was Clinton. Bush was 2001. Oh, and the other contentious part behind the scenes is Randy Newman- Oscar-winning, famous composer, basically composed, you know, I don't know, must be like eight different Pixar movies. He originally provided the score, but Wolfgang Peterson, the director, thought it was too serious to the point of being unintentionally funny. So at the last minute with like only 12 days left for the film to come out, he hires an alternative composer, Jerry Goldsmith, to rewrite the score. And then years later, back in like in 2010, Randy Newman recycled some of his rejected score for Air Force One and used it in Toy Story 3. Yeah, right. Wow. Um, I read on IMDb that um, on the commentary they say that if Harrison Ford hadn't taken the role of the president, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Keanu Reeves and Dennis Quaid would be the other choices, which is really bizarre because I cannot imagine 1997 Keanu Reeves being believable as the president. Like, he's too young and too dumb and... 
full of cum. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's it. That's the line. Um, but like, but like, th- what? And Arnold Schwarzenegger, 1997, was obviously pre-governator. That wouldn't be believable at all. You know, Dennis Quaid, I buy, but but it did goes to show how much of like, I guess that you take for granted the sort of believability as Harrison Ford as this sort of incredibly all-American president, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, you've walked into casting what it should have could is, and I think you're absolutely right with that analysis. The other person, though, besides Dennis Quaid, before Harrison Ford was off the role, was actually Kevin Costner. Oh, I believe that. Yeah, 100%. But he was shooting the postman. Yeah. So because he was tied up with the postman, he actually recommended to the studio themselves that they actually talk to Harrison Ford. But I could see between Harrison Ford, <laughs> Dennis Quaid and Kevin Costner, they're all the same ilk, aren't they, of the, of the same cookie cutter? Yeah. Like, anyway, um, I think, you know, like Tom Hanks was another one. It's like, uh, well, I could believe him as the president. He's much more of a – like, I don't believe him as a, a president who would kind of know how to use a, a machine gun. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. Um, the only other casting woulda, shoulda, coulda that was interesting was that Glenn Close was actually a last-minute casting decision to play Vice President Catherine Bennett. Um, she only agreed, though, after they changed some of the scenes because they originally had a breaking down crying, which he thought was very disempowering and cliched for a female character. Um, she does tear up visibly at one point when the National Security Advisor is killed while she's on the phone with the terrorists. But otherwise, she's quite a stoic force. And I think she's actually really good in this film. Yeah. I, I also, I do I do like how willing Gary Oldman's character is to shoot the hostages. I think they do a really great job of, you know, ratcheting up the tension and actually having him follow through with those things. It'd be really easy to make him sort of not do that. Um, the only thing that would have made it better if he'd like maybe shot the first daughter. Huh, look out. <laughs> Speaking of lookout, spot the Aussie. Did you spot any Aussies in Executive Decision or Air Force One? Uh, no, did you? No, I don't think so. Did I? I didn't miss anyone incredibly obvious. I, I think it took till around the 2000s before Aussies started really appearing in movies. Like, it took it like, I, 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 th- I think in this sort of window of time, we didn't see as many Aussies. Either it was Croc Dundee in the 80s, Paul Hogan, or suddenly this whole wave of them going across in the 2000s. But if we get thinking about all these films that we love, like Con Air, Air Force One and so on, I can't think of any Aussies that would pop up occasionally at all, um, except for yeah, totally. uh, Jack Thompson, who always would play some sort of commander in the Situation Room. I mean, if Air Force One had been made 10 years later, you know Rada Mitchell would have played one of the- Flight attendants or something. FEMA. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like how we had, um, who's the actor, the Aussie actor we saw in Flight Plan with Jodie Foster who played a flight attendant? Kate Behan? Oh, yeah, K- Katie Behan. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, marketing methodology matters missteps. Um, I mentioned earlier the poster. So uh, it's contentious as to why Stephen Segal's face was dropped from other posters in certain territories. Um, perhaps it was, you know, fearing sort of like, over-promising and under-delivering because he's killed so soon um, and perhaps leading to the fact that he was a po- positive surprise. I actually think it's actually because the behind-the-scenes trouble because Hollywood has very often put big characters, big actors on posters who only appear for a few minutes. 
Well, I mean, this is the same year as the Scream. Oh, with Drew Barrymore came out, and yeah. Drew Barrymore is you know front and centre of that poster, and is you know famously killed in the opening sequence. Oh, wowza! Who should they kill her off? Who could be next? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody else from the poster. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump to the box office, Gabe. Which movie do you think was the box office champ? Have a guess. Well, I'm going to guess Air Force One, but I hope both of these movies were successes. Okay. So, executive decision was made for a budget of $55 million. Side note, mm-hmm. I think that's good bang for your buck, don't you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it did $56.5 million domestically in the States, mm-hmm. plus $65.5 million internationally for a grand total of $122 million from that $55 million budget. Yeah, okay. Air Force One cost 30k more it cost 85 million dollars it did 173 million dollars domestically in the states plus 142 million internationally for a worldwide total of 315 million dollars so yeah, yeah. it did really well you'd be much much happier with the uh those air force one numbers <laughs> yeah exactly uh do you think executive decision which came out before air force one ate the lunch at all of Air Force One or do you think these films would have been viewed differently enough in the marketplace to not have had either one impact on the box office of the other? Yeah, I think differently enough. I mean, yeah, definitely, right? You don't you don't think the opposite, do you? No, I think they came out far enough apart and the premises were just different enough Yeah, that they didn't actually compete with each other. Yeah, and I guess Air Force One was probably the slightly more prestigious, bigger one. Anyway, you know, if you'd seen Executive Decision, I'm not calling it a B picture by any by any stretch, but it certainly was the sort of probably uglier cousin. Yeah, totally. All right, let's move on to Rotten Tomatoes. Have a guess which movie impressed the critics. Uh, I'm going to guess both of these were fairly well-reviewed. Yep, you'd be right. Nice. Executive has 65% on the tomato meter versus uh, Air Force One with 78%. And guess the most popular film with the audiences. I'm going to go for Air Force One. Yep. Uh, Executive has 53% with audiences compared to Air Force, which has 66%. Those numbers don't really surprise me. I am surprised that critics gave Air Force One a score as high as 78%. I'm not saying that's wrong, but critics at the time tended to be a bit harsher on these high-concept action movies. So it's a pretty good score. Yeah, well, I mean, it's pretty hard to give Air Force One Less than a three out of five. I mean, true, and that's sixty percent. If you're going to be like, it's a three out of five. I mean, you could argue that. I think it's a little better than that personally, but I mean, come on, it ain't a. It's not a two out of five. Jeez, come on. Yeah, true. You know, I've always been bugged though how the Americans generally use a star rating of four. Ah, uh, that makes no sense. What the? F- that is, it. Oh, so irritating. Because five is quantifiable with common metrics such as a score out of 10, a score out of 100, right? Oh. So you said before three out of five, that equates to 60 out of 100 or 60%, right? It's something that is yeah. kind of ubiquitous across general measurements of success. Four stars makes no sense and there's no oh, there's it's... no halfway point either. Like three you can kind of argue is close to halfway or two and a half stars is halfway. There's no halfway. Oh, I suppose there is two out of four, but it's not a clean fit. Well, if you included, if you included zero, then you've actually got f- 
you could just include zero, so you go zero, one, two, three, four. Now you actually have a score out of five. So if someone gave it a zero, you just call it a one. I don't know. I, if it, it, it boggles my mind. I agree, Ben. It's so weird um, choosing to do it that way. I mean, if you're going to do it, just, just say... Like, was it Cisco and Ebert who just did the thumbs up, thumbs down? Yeah. Like, and then, of course, if they did one thumb, one thumb each, that'd be equivalent of half and half. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I. Oh, man, it's kept me awake at night thinking about this out of four thing. I think they're just trying to be contrarian or something, you know? Oh. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any harm in having a bit of extra bandwidth, extra line for an extra star. Um, I mean, If any I mean, podcast listeners right. can tell us why the hell four stars instead of five originated as a standard in the States, we would love to hear because it doesn't make sense from outside America. No. And, like, if I was like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna rate movies out of six, you'd be like, that's weird. That's weird. But somehow we've accepted four. I'm going to rate movies out of out of seven. 17. Yeah. 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 You'd be like, what's wrong with you? I mean, I mean, seven maybe. Yeah, I, I agree. Seven maybe. I agree. You know. Um, All right, it's time for the awards, Gabe. Are you pumped? Are you excited? Are you ready? I, I am. <laughs> you sound ready but not pumped. I'm, I'm still thinking about seven, seven rating movies out of seven. Seven. Let me distract you. Seven chipmunks twirling on a branch, eating lots of sunflowers on my uncle's ranch. You know that old children's tale from the sea? I didn't, but I do now. Yeah. Uh, let me distract you with... The awards, starting with okay. best title, Gab. Both of these are great titles. Air Force One, executive decision. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm right in the middle here. In the Siskel Ebert thumb up, thumb down, Ben, you can break this tie. Uh, I think they're both good as well. I th- don't actually know. Thinking about it, how the first film involves an executive decision. What is the executive decision in the movie? <sighs> it's full of executive. Every decision they make is executive. Right. I mean, do you think executive implies like the executive branch of the government, i.e. the president? Because you'd be right. Yeah. There's not a lot of presidential decisions, is there? That's how I always interpret that phrase. I'll go with the Air Force One. But that's just fancy people like you and I know what the executive branch of government is, you know. True, true. I'll go with Air Force One because even though it doesn't actually describe anything like the hijacking or the action, just the name itself is evocative. Mm. Force. One. Air. And air. <laughs> air, the most powerful element of them all. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I'm going with Air Force One. Okay. All right. Good. Best poster. Can you describe to our listeners uh, each of the posters and let's rate which one's the best? Okay. So we're going to go off just what is currently the IMDb splash page poster, right? Exactly. So we will not take into account the controversies around the executive decision poster. So executive decision is just Kurt Russell's big head above a stealth bomber thing and then a group of guys. Interestingly, no one's in the air in this one. They're all on the ground. Hmm. Uh, Air Force One is Harrison Ford's huge head um, and then the words Air Force One and a plane taking off below him. I think this was that period of time where every Harrison Ford movie had just giant Harrison Ford head on the poster. I think there's some, like, meme about that, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, and, yeah, I mean. Just classic huge head. Well, you what's know? your preferred poster? They're both kind of shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, neither of them. Executive decision. It does actually have a basic outline of that stealth fighter, which I think was trying to sort of sex it up as being exciting. It actually reminds me of that movie Stealth. You know that film Stealth where basically wow. you had that film which has a stealth plane with AI? Yeah, yeah, shot in Australia. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, with Jamie Foxx. Um, 
this poster and that particular plane gave me sort of flashbacks to that movie. That was critically maligned and didn't do well. It does look like the stealth poster. Wow. That's, there you go. I'd say right now on Earth we're the only people talking about the movie Stealth in this moment. I'd say you're probably right. Uh, I think they're both pretty poor posters. I think yeah. executive decision doesn't really convey the stakes of that movie at all and the Stealth Bomber is alluded to but isn't clear enough to give you a sense of the drama that will unfold with that plane. In Air Force One it just has him looking at the audience viewer and a plane taking off. I mean, that's all I need. It's all I need. I just so trust is in Harrison Ford. Make the call. Well, just give it to Harrison Ford, big head. All right, Harrison Ford's big head for Air Force One. Okay, moving on to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Gave who jumped from indie films into the Hollywood big time when they starred in these movies. So, is this actors only? Nope, it can be in front or behind the screen, I think. Because, you know, Ben, I work as an editor. Um, I always find it interesting when editors get to direct movies. Stuart Baird on Executive Decision leaped from being an editor to a director. I mean, I I don't know if he went from indies, you know, given that he had uh, cut, I don't know, Maverick and The Last Boy Scout and Die Hard 2 and Lethal Weapon 2 before this, but, you know... Stuart Baird, perhaps? Can I throw him in the ring? Yeah, I think he's an awesome nominee. And before we move on, I want to ask this question. Why is it that so few editors don't make the move to directing? I get they're going from a dark edit suite in a sedentary position on a chair. (laughs) And there you go. Um, They may like social skills. Gabe, you excluded. Thanks, Ben. However... Essentially what you're doing is the same thing that many storyboard artists and so on have done, which is seeing a film, constructing a film with images and seeing what performances work and what don't work. And you can learn as much about doing something from watching what doesn't work. So you've seen the worst of the worst and then crafted a great performance and a great story and great rhythm and action from what's been given to you. To me, it doesn't make sense that more editors aren't directors. Well, and I wonder why that is. What's your take on that? As a professional working editor who also has directed in the first instance before you became a professional editor, why is that, do you think? I mean, uh, perhaps it's that you really understand how the sausage gets made. And I mean, when you're sitting there watching all of the rushes and stuff and sitting there with the director and they're telling you how much they had to compromise on nearly everything in some capacity, you know, there's that saying filmmaking is compromise. I don't know, probably just off-putting. Also, what a hassle directing is. <laughs> like, so you think basically you're sitting there eating um, a Mars bar and an air-conditioned edit suite. Okay, yep. And you're hearing these horror stories about actors playing up and there wasn't a budget to shoot this shot and the producer's going crazy and you're thinking, it sounds like too much hard work. Like I could see how I could do this better as an editor, but it just doesn't seem worth it. Like you've seen, as you say, you've seen all of the offal in the sausage. You've made the sausage taste good, but you thought, you know what, I'm not going to eat the sausage myself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And there's not a huge amount of um, editors who went on to become Successful directors. I mean, Hal Ashby, you know, he cut Heat of the Night and then directed Being There and a bunch of other kind of 
famous early 70s movies and he died. Um, David Lean or Don Siegel, I think he was an editor. But, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like when DOPs become directors and then they just direct sort of like shitty programmers or something. I don't know. Like, yeah, I'm... I'm not sure. I don't. I, I. I don't know what the answer is, except that I don't know why anyone would want the hassle of directing. <laughs> well, I can understand more when DOPs become directors because they're already on set, right? So they're already dealing with the hardship of shooting as it is. They're, they're already actually directing half of the movie <laughs> yeah, anyway. That's right. So it's not. <laughs> oh, sorry, not allowed to say that. <laughs> it's not such a stretch that they're actually making that jump across, and in some rare instances, and this is much more uncommon, but occasions have, it happens occasionally, you'll have a director who actually DP's own movie like Paul Thomas Anderson did where he didn't bring on his usual collaborator, Robert Ellswit, for The Phantom Thread. And that's less common. That's less common. But who's the guy that did uh, Jan, what's his name, who did Speed? He's a good example. Oh, Jan DuPont. Yep. And then there's the other DOP who did The Adams Family. Barry Sonnefeld. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's more common. And then I think in recent years, as there's been this focus on international movies, movies that travel internationally with little dialogue and are more dependent on action, more stunt coordinators have become directors, like the two stunt coordinators behind the Deadpool movies, who then have created other movies like Atomic Blonde and so on, and the Fast and Furious Hobson Shaw movie. So that's becoming a growing trend. The guy behind that. Netflix, Chris Hemsworth action movie Extraction. Um, that's, I guess, a recognition long overdue for either second unit directors or action choreographers. But again, editors not so much. And I note actually in the filmography, Stuart Bard, Baird, after doing this movie, he's then returned to predominantly editing. Yeah, totally. I think he, he directed one or two other Movies, but you're right. I mean, and he's got to be one of the most, you know, he cut Skyfall and Casino Royale, Legend of Zorro. I mean, he's obviously an incredibly talented editor. Um, I mean, they shoot Skyfall and, uh, you know, in 2012, and then a few other movies, a lot of the movies as well, Casino Royale. Like, he did return to the peak of quality Hollywood filmmaking. So I guess he was scarred. I mean, after executive decision, he did US Marshals. Ah, you know, nice. Then Star Trek Nemesis. Oh, yeah, look. I mean, Star Trek Nemesis is a pretty big break. No, well, I th- isn't that the most sort of least liked? I was going to say widely hated. Uh, oh, I didn't. Least liked. I mean, it- I didn't say best film. I said big break. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. And it was also that big break was also the end for him. <laughs> yeah, true. Okay. Uh, uh, he's a good nominee. Um, back to the awards, the Bill Fleck Awards. I'd say Halle Berry. Big break for her? Although- Big pay rise? Well, pay rise, sure. But in 1993, she was in Passenger 57 playing almost the exact same role. Uh, okay, that's true. All right. Um, Any other nominees? Well, what about, you said yep. Leguizamo? I mean, he also um, had Roman Juliet. That was a more interesting role. But, yeah, big role for him. And what about David Suchet? Suchet, 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 Suchet. What did he go on and do- Who plays the villain. After this? And what was he doing before? Oh, I mean, he's got a trillion credits- before this in heaps and heaps of British TV. And, you know, he's obviously a really talented, he's Henry the Fourth, and, you know. But but perhaps this was a big step up sort of, I suppose. Yeah, okay, I'll go with that. I think Stuart Bard still is in the driver's seat. Okay. How about Air Force One? Um, 
Gary Oldman. William H. Macy. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, okay. I mean, yeah. Gary Oldman. Yeah. I mean, he's in The Professional before. That, that was a pretty small movie. That was a French-US production, though. I'd call that almost an indie movie. Well, okay. He'd been the lead in Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker Dracula playing the character of Dracula. Oh, yeah. Okay, that doesn't count. Okay, so we can't have him in it. Um, yeah, although William Hatch Macy's in a pretty small role. I don't know if it's a huge step up. Anyone else? Nah. <laughs> I mean, you can say the daughter, Liesl Matthews, but she'll be up for an award later on, I suspect. <laughs> well, okay, here's a... Here's a question. What did oh uh, no, he did Outbreak before this and in the line of fight. Never mind. Cut that. <laughs> I was gonna be like, what about Wolfgang? Was this right after Dust Boot? But it was yeah, not. No, it was no. a couple of movies okay. after Dust Boot. I think Stuart Bard gets it. Okay, give it to old Stewie. The Bill Fleck Big Break Award. Okay. Now the before they were famous award or blink and you'll miss them. Gabe, starting with executive decision. Before they're famous. I mean, mm. at what point did BD Wong get famous? Oh, I'd say he's a good nominee, yeah. Tell the audience which films he's famous for. I mean, B.D. Wong, is, he's got one of them heads that you just recognise him. I mean, he was in Jurassic Park as Wu, but, I mean, he's just, he, he, just, turn, he, just, he turns up in a lot of stuff. Uh, it's always nice when he turns up, B.D. Wong, but what was the, which, which Law and Order was he in for like 50 million years? Oh, yeah, one of them. He, yeah, that's right. Yeah, one of them. And also he's been in like, he's the only actor that's been in, most of those Jurassic Park movies as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, who else? Who else before they were famous crops up in? Oh, by the way, Gab, I think we left off a potential winner before, which was Oliver Platt, but maybe we'll save him for later on. Okay. Um, save Platt. Yeah. As for um, Marla Maples? Well, you mentioned her before. I don't know enough about... Um, Donald Trump's ex-wives. Yeah. Um, I don't think she can, she can be a nominee for another award later on. How about um, Andreas Katasoulos, who played Jaffa, who's the terrorist that's they're seeking to free? You, is this the one-armed man? Yeah. Well, I only know him as the one-armed, like, was he ever in another movie apart from these two? Yeah, it feels like basically all these people are naming are nominees for other awards down the track. <laughs> yeah, totally. So there's not, oh, Okay. Titus Welliver is in Air Force One. Okay, and who's he? Mother, f- who's Titus <laughs> Welliver? Titus Welliver is you, you. Okay, like you, you, you might not know his name, but if you if you bang Titus Welliver into Google, you would one hundred percent recognize him, Ben. You'd be like that guy. So he's in. Yeah, but what's he been in? What's he been in? Okay, is do you ever watch Bosch the TV series? He played Bosch. Oh yeah, that guy. Yeah. Okay, and then he's you know he's in the he's in the town he's in Argo, he he turns up in tons and tons of stuff. Anyway, okay, I think I- he's uncredited uncredited in Air Force One. He's just man in background, and I was like, there he is, Titus Welliver. What? Okay, I've got him down there as a nominee, and then in the same movie. I'm also thinking William H Macy. I mean, okay, well, I'm he- I'm, I'm 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 inclined to give it to Titus Welliver because he's uncredited. Okay, okay, he's just man in background. Yep. All right. That's a that's a perfect example of someone who deserves the before they were famous award. Okay. Done. Yes, I got one. Well done, Titus. <laughs> Moving on to the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award, named after the iconic performance by Tommy Lee in The Fugitive. Who stole the show despite being a small or poorly written role? 
starting with executive decision. Now, just to be clear, this is not. I mean, this, maybe Steven Seagal. <laughs> this is not the Handbone Award, right? I shouldn't. I shouldn't. No, no. Jump the. Okay, that's a Nicholas Cage good, good, chewing good, good, the scenery good, good, good. award. Okay, so how how was it after like fifty episodes? You still don't know any of these awards? I'm very confused. I'm often very because also uh, yeah I don't. All right, Ben, I'm a. I'm an idiot. What can I say? So who stole the show? I thought Kathy was good, Joe Morton, who was the yep. temporarily paralysed bomb disposal expert. He was good. Very good. Uh, Oliver Platt's great in a small role. Mm-hmm. Uh, David mm-hmm. Suchet we mentioned before. I mean, if you look at what he actually says on the page, his lines aren't that interesting. His character doesn't have a huge arc, but I think he's really good. Mm-hmm. Actually, he'd be probably be my nominee so far, I think. Yeah, because he's – because. He's not going to win the Hambone Award or anything, so we should we should really consider giving him something because, as we said, he underplays it beautifully and he really elevates the the role despite being a kind of stock villain, you know. Totally. Um, Who's he up against then in Air Force One? Uh, uh, who we got? Paul Guilfoyle, who plays Chief of Staff Lloyd. <laughs> Who's a sort of disparaging guy on the plane and then he gets shot. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's quite good. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always like him. He's always good value. I think he's the guy who's uh, David Caruso's 2IC in CSI Miami. Yeah. No, wait. Not David. Is it David Caruso or is he William Peterson's 2IC? Oh, one, one of them. He's he's, de- he's definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe he's more of a, the whatever the award named after Delroy Lindo is. Hmm. Um, uh, I mean, does Glenn Close elevate her Ooh, role as a very yeah, she, stock character? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think she's really good. I think, Okay. I mean, also this is back like 23 years ago before we had a female vice president or any sort of female in movies in a kind of lead role in the executive government. So that's also a bit sort of unusual of the time. So I reckon Glenn okay. Close. So it's, it's, so it's a, it, go on. Glenn Close up against... David Suchet, ooh. I only got David Suchet because I think his role is harder to do well given what he was, had to work with. Okay, good call. All right, done. The Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on. Ha, okay. <laughs> who didn't make the most of opportunities after appearing in these films, either in front of or behind the camera? Well, I mean... <laughs> Can we give, like, Steven Seagal is surely a nominee for this? Thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, his life was kind of imploding, allegedly, uh, you know, behind the scenes. And I don't feel he ever really took all of the cachet, the stock he generated from under siege and really parlayed it as he should. No. So. I mean, it was a real downwards, downwards trajectory, apart from a tiny little glimmer with exit wounds uh, uh, in 2001. That just ever so slightly lifted him and then, oh, well, it's way, 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 way down, way, 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 way into the depths of, um, you know, he just sucks. Yep. Other actors like Kurt Russell (laughs) dipped after films like this and came back. There's also classic renaissance uh, comebacks like, you know, um, Matthew McConaughey and the McConaughey where people mm-hmm. reinvented themselves in a unique way by starring in indie movies but also being a bit self-deprecating. It would appear that Steven Seagal doesn't have that same sense of humour about himself, which probably would have helped zero, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and- it's, it's really interesting that because all the other action guys from that period 
you know, your, your real top tier guys, Stallone and um, Schwarzenegger, and then the other guys, JCVD, Lundgren. At least they all seem to have a sort of sense of humour about themselves. Seagal has zero, like takes himself so seriously. Um, you know, it's just, ugh. You should just Google as well Steven Seagal pants shitting. There's great stories around the times he got choked out and shat his pants. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll say that little treat for tonight. Yeah, yeah. For everyone. I encourage anyone listening to this to Google that. It's great. And I'll just ration the results too so I can then save them day by day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Savor. Savor that. Uh, All right. So we've got potentially Steven Seagal for the Mickey Rourke Award for executive decision. How about Air Force One? I mean, I th- can anyone? I mean, I think the director did make the most of his opportunities by doing two big films after this. So... You can't say he didn't take advantage of what he what he had. Uh, what did Andrew Marlowe do? He was the well, writer. He created the TV series Castle, which oh. ran 173 episodes. So I'm sure he's so he's doing fine. Made bank on that, and he wrote Hollow Man. Okay, which I mean, you know, pretty good, <laughs> pretty good. Well, I think Stephen gets it. Okay, give it to Stephen Seagal. Yes. Okay, moving on to the winner winner chicken dinner award. Who came out on top in these movies, starting with Exec? Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to say that Stuart Bard, again, has done very well. This is his first ever film as a director. It's pretty amazing. The film's well-received, good reviews, makes decent money. It's pretty complex to make and seems to deliver a pretty cohesive, entertaining film. Mm. I'd say he'd be a nominee. Uh, you know, just just while we're on this. Kurt, Kurt Russell's great. He does a He plays an everyman, unlike his kind of macho character from... Escape from New York, so he's kind of playing playing against typical casting. That's true. It's weird. It's weird when he's there's like Kurt Russell with beard and Kurt Russell with no beard are the two forms of Kurt Russell. Or with singlet or no singlet. <laughs> mm. You know, this has got nothing to do with this award, so I'm going to bring it up now, Ben. But Executive Decision has five editors credited. Five. That's a lot of editors, you know. Now, that's weird because the director is an editor, so what's going on there? Do you think he just sacked I, one after the other because no one... Uh, Got it like he got it? I don't know. Like maybe they had a schedule. You'd have to look at when they started shooting versus when the film had to get released. You know, it's not uncommon for directors to have more than one editor, include, and, and there'd be nothing wrong with that. I think Michael Mann, you know, uses sort of three editors on a lot of his movies and Michelangelo DeBay has a number of editors. So, it, you know, two or three is not uncommon, but five is a lot of editors. Um, yeah, that's crazy. Um you know, I don't know. Anyway, uh, what award were we doing again? <laughs> Sorry. The winner, winner, chicken dinner. Uh, yes. Uh, well, I guess those editors were not winners of these awards. Um, no. I'd be saying Kurt Russell's a nominee and so is Stuart Bard for executive. Okay. And then on Air Force One, I'm thinking Wolfgang's doing really well, the director. Harrison Ford, I mean, he is just top of his game. It kind of dips after this a bit, but I would say he's definitely – just totally playing his his wheelhouse. Yeah. This was the sort of apex for him though, wasn't it? Because after this- It goes down. Six Days, Seven Nights, Random Hearts. I mean, What Lies Beneath is pretty good, but but K-9, Widowmaker, Hollywood Homicide, wow, it really does go down. This was absolutely the, the peak before the fall for Harrison Ford. And I think that's one of the things I sensed at the time, which is why I didn't see it. Not that I'm a prophet, but I did sort of feel that he was definitely getting older and beyond his Tom Clancy, Harrison, Indiana Jones type roles and 
just didn't have that same sort of action star physicality they used to have, mm. which is fine when the film's set in a plane where there's less running required. <laughs> mm, totally, totally. Right, so I'm looking at Harrison Ford here, or Stuart Bard. What do you think? You, you, you choose, Ben. You choose. I'm going to go with Stuart Bard. Okay. If this is my first movie ever, I'd be pretty happy with this movie, Executive Decision. Do you think his name is Bard or Baird? Baird. Mm. I think I'm just pronouncing it incorrectly each time. We, I, I, I always... I always try and pronounce things with a, uh, a modicum of authority as if I know how to pronounce these things. But I realise in retrospect, you know, I've been pronouncing everyone's name wrong. Who knows? Who knows? And I'm sorry to all of those people. I think you're right, Jeeb. That's me. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Best dialogue. What's your favourite quote? Starting with exec. Um, what, what, what's the super heightened uh, back and forward between Seagal and um, Kurt Russell right before Seagal dies? Oh, I can't recall. Is there, is there banter? Oh, yeah. Doesn't he say something like, um, Colonel, grab my hand. Colonel, we're not going to make it, but you are. And then he gets sucked out of the plane. Listen to me. Listen to me. Someone has got to close the hatch now or we're all going to die. Do it now. That's I mean, you know, it's straightforward to the point, but, you know. I like that line where Rat, John Legismo, comments on seeing uh, Kurt Russell wearing a tuxedo and says, who's this 007? Isn't there some story about um, Kurt Russell hating how much Leguizamo would improvise? Yeah, we left that out from our earlier behind the scenes, but uh, allegedly so. Apparently there was quite a lot of improv, which is pretty cocky of Johnny Boy given that, he was the younger, less experienced actor and, you know, Kurt Russell is the star of the movie. I'm surprised he was so annoyed because I would have thought a confident actor could just sort of work with that and respond. But maybe if you're someone who likes the lines and you want the structure, it'd be pretty annoying. Yeah, that's right. Um, but there you go. Perhaps one of his improvs made it all the way here to this award. It's changed some lives. Okay, let's go to Air Force One. Um, I know what the quote here is. It's the one from the trailer. I mentioned it earlier. Well, you've already, we've already, we've already, we've already said it, right? It's President James Marshall says, "Get off my plane! Get off my plane!" Uh, any, Get off my plane. Any others? Uh, uh, no. I mean, it's interesting. Like, neither of these, apart from "Get off my plane," which is fairly iconic. There wasn't many other real, you know, gang-busting classic classic lines. No, there wasn't. That's why I think Get, get Off My Plane gets it um, by default, basically. Mm, okay, Get Off My Plane wins. Okay. The Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Gabe, you've been waiting for this. Let's start with executive decision. So there's not a great deal of scenery chewing in this, is there? I mean... I'd say Steven Seagal in the sense that, you know, I wouldn't call it chewing, I'd just call it inactive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there is only one. Let's just let's just cut to the let's not let's not piss about. Let's not we didn't come here to fuck spiders. It's Gary Oldman. <laughs> Where's that expression from again? That's a great quote. I don't know. I, I always assumed it's like super Australian, right? Like yeah. Is it though? Like does I don't know. I think I've heard it in a cut movie myself before. It's so weird. But it's a it's a funny expression because 
it doesn't make much sense at all, but I like it. It just sounds funny. Uh, it is an Australian expression. It, it must be so, if you went to the US or to, I don't know, Namibia or Indonesia and threw it around, people would be absolutely confused by it. And possibly horrified as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, <laughs> just trying to think about the mechanics of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even if you tried to do it without the swears, it would be almost even more confusing. That's right, like, exactly. I, I'm, I'm not here to have sex with a, an arachnid. People are like, ah, uh, <laughs> none of it even works. I mean, even if it's just like I'm not here to bang a donkey, at least you'd be like, I guess that's physically possible. <laughs> anyway, uh, oh. um, Gary Oldman was in fact not on Air Force One to fuck a spider. He did not come with anything except the absolute maximum mega acting, super performance, turned dialed to 11. Yep. Redonkulousnessnessnessnessness. To the point of, didn't you say, I think you pitched to me before we recorded this, we could almost rename this award. Yeah, totally, as the Gary Oldman Award. As the Gary Oldman Award. Should we consider doing that now or? Okay, well, like for. Is that too controversial? Well, I, Ben, I can barely remember what any of the awards. You could, you could rename it. I think that's what it would have always been. Okay. You could just bamboozle me in an instant. Is it the Gary Oldman Chewing the Scenery Award from now on or is it the Gary Oldman can of spam, can of ham, award. What, what's the award currently called? The Nicholas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Okay. What if it was Gary Oldman presents the Nicholas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award? <laughs> okay. So we sort of we're just adding him in there, you know. How about Gary Oldman is sitting on a can of ham uh-huh. whilst presenting uh-huh. the Nicholas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award? Okay. Sure. Okay. Done. All uh, right. He gets it. Let's move to the Who's Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. Anyone, you know, kind of slumming it for the cash or desperate for a paycheck? Well, you told me Halle Berry said no till she got a million bucks, so good on her. Oh, of course. She'd have to be here. Yeah, I think so. There you go. I mean. And I think Air Force One, I don't think anyone was there, you know, dialing it in for, you know, money. I mean, yeah, I think it's got to be... Halle Berry. Let's give it to Halle. Okay. Moving on to the Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hates That Guy, named after the famous supporting actor who's appeared as Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day amongst over 270 other films and TV shows. Gabe, who triggered Hates That Guy when he or she appeared on screen? Man, this is like a – what's that thing about some number of riches? This is a, an abundance of riches for oh, this. Oh, totally. Where do you, we're just gonna, okay, let's start working through the list because there's a lot. Okay, smash through them. Let's start with executive decision, starting with okay. Oliver Platt's definitely one. 100%. Joe Morton. Yep. BD Wong. JT Walsh. Whip, I mean, JT Whip Walsh Hubbley, is a major league. Who played Baker. Guy. Oh, yeah. So is he the guy that you said from Top Gun? Yeah, you know where they're playing that volleyball scene and he's on Iceman's team? Oh, uh, yeah. And it's playing that song, Playing With The Boys. I know, you sing that a lot, Ben. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, like- Andreas uh, Katsulalas, who played Jaffa, uh, who's the one-armed man from The Fugitive. Oh, yeah, yep. Uh, J- that definitely a hate, that guy. JT Walsh. Oh, God, what a- I love JT Walsh. Who else? Uh, I mean, that's a good. Uh, that's a good. That's a good selection. Okay. From from that, I mean, moving on to Air Force One. Fuck, Air Force One is almost even, even more stacked, right? Like, so William H Macy, William H Macy, Paul Guilfoyle, as we said before, uh, yep. Dean Stockwell, um, Xander Berkeley, 
who, you know, you, you and I love from the movie Heat, who is the guy who's ah. um, Plough and Pacino's wife uh, who, can, <laughs> who, who can't watch his TV. <laughs> Anything but watch the dang TV. Um, yeah, he's, a, he's quite a recognisable face. He appears in Terminator 2 as well, yeah, Shanghai yeah. Noon, yeah. 24. He often plays a suit. He also plays Gregory in The Walking Dead. There you go. Uh, Philip Baker Hall turns up. Oh, of course. You know, he's a big hazy, like, oh, there he is, Philip Baker Hall. And Philip Baker Hall and Moy H. Macy were both in Boogie Nights like one year later as well, which is funny. Mm. Oh. Uh, yeah, I mean, so who do you take your pick? Maybe we should just turn this into like an ensemble award and just give it to them all. <laughs> like- I feel like we have to because also I feel like this is an example and it's a bit like if you see films like The Rock. There's that window of time where basically – uh, people like um, Michael Bay were casting all these indie actors to give their films cred. Have you heard this theory about Michael Bay and the Coen brothers? No. What is this theory? It's basically him giving credit to the Coen brothers, just dis- discovering and making all these fantastic indie actors, and then him just basically saying, well, I'm never going to make a Coen brothers indie movie. I appreciate them. They're not for me. My style is different. But I want to kind of like – somehow vicariously be able to do that. Right. So then just basically cast people like John Turturro, Steve Buscemi, Francis McDormand, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, makes sense. I mean, those Transformers movies are pretty bad. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say, but, yeah, they've got good casts. And a lot of paychecks taken. (laughs) Great, great cast. Okay, so we're going to say, is this jointly shared between both casts of both Air Force One and Executive Decision because they're so stacked with great actors? Yeah, first time ever going to do this. This is like a SAG uh, Ensemble Award. Yeah, Ensemble. Done. For the first time ever, the Ensemble Award goes to both movies for jointly sharing the Stephen Tobolowsky Award. Okay, now this award's kind of linked because I'd say some of the players from that SAG-esque ensemble award would definitely qualify for the Delroy Linda Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Yeah. So let's start with executive decision. I mean, same big set of names, although what's interesting, maybe we could change it up a little bit, why isn't Oliver Platt in as many movies as he used to be? Have you noticed that? He had this funny run in the 90s and 2000s, like films like Lake Placid, all these sort of films he was in where he was often playing a supporting character. We've talked about him before in 2012, uh, Bicentennial Man. Like he's also done a lot of TV amazingly. He was in Chicago PD in Chicago Fire most recently and Chicago Med, he's done 104 episodes. I didn't even know this as Daniel Charles in that huge network US TV show, Chicago Med. Does that even air on I don't think it does. television in Australia? I don't no, I don't think so. Well, I mean, I'm sure he's making bank doing that, but I swear, it's you know, I can't remember who said it. Someone... Uh, point out that like there's these actors who are in, just like it feels like they're in every single movie until suddenly they're not. You know, like think of someone like Steve Zahn in the sort of mid nineties. Yeah, it's like, just, and then like Delroy Lindo. <sighs> Delroy Lindo was in every movie and then just vanished for ten years and then came back in the what's it called the Five Bloods. Yeah, yeah, and you know I reckon he's got a pretty good shot at winning uh, an Oscar for the Five Bloods. Uh, Coming up, but but wow, like yeah, Oliver Platt. Anyway, so like, is it? Do we have any other people in that? Like in in Air Force One, is there anyone who was? I mean, William H Macy a little bit was sort of, 
ubiquitous until he wasn't? I think what happened was is that they went to TV. Maybe. So We've Had Mace is a great example. He does Shameless and does like eight seasons of that. Uh, Dean Stockwell, um, I don't think he ever went back to TV after Quantum Leap, did he? I mean, he kind of vanished. <laughs> Quantum Leap. I'm looking at IMDb here. He was in NCIS New Orleans for one episode in 2014. Uh, but, you know, to be fair, he was born in 1936. <laughs> so so how old is he? 104. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean. So he's, not, but he's 94. Yeah. Is that right? No, he's 84. 84. So, yeah, you can you can forgive him for probably just, you know. Retiring. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but he's another one of those guys who felt like he was kind of in everything. I mean, in 1997, he's credited on one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine movies. That all came out in 1997. Yeah, he goes. I mean, a few of them I've never heard of. I don't know what Unabomber, the true story was, or Close to Danger, or Living in Peril, but he was in McHale's Navy. Yeah, he kind of went quiet ish after 2000. I mean, he was in it, he had roles, but not as many roles as you'd expect. Mm. Uh, okay, he's a nominee. Who else? Any other great actors not cast often enough? I mean, JT Walsh is always great. Um, what about Jurgen Prunchnow? The guy who was in um, Dust Boot that made Wolfgang Peterson I mean, a commercial director. I love, uh, I love Jurgen. I love it whenever Jurgen turns up in a movie. Gee, Jurgen, I'm surprised he hasn't been in more films. Like, think about um, who's the guy? Uh, what's his name from um, Inglorious Bastards? Till Schweiger. Christoph Waltz. Okay. <laughs> Christoph Waltz, <laughs> sure. right? German actor, wins two Oscars, basically only does. Hollywood films, and um, Nomi Rapace, right, becomes famous from the uh, Girl with Dragon Tattoo film and since 2010 she hasn't made a single film at home, just American movies, whereas Jürgen went back. Jürgen went home. He went back and basically made predominantly, oh, maybe a mixture, but I'm just surprised we don't see him on screen more. He's got that really distinctive face, like that kind of jaw of that guy used to be on X, uh, the X-Files. Do you remember that guy on X-Files who had that quite distinctive jaw who may have been an alien? Do you recall him? Yeah. Um, that guy is the alien bounty hunter. Yeah. Brian Thompson. He's the villain in um, right. uh, Cobra. Yeah. So Jürgen could have actually, I think, parlayed a career in a more successful way than that guy, but hasn't. So- I and he's a great actor, so I'd have him as a nominee. Okay. Well, uh, I forgot who the other nominees were, so I just say give it to Jurgen. <laughs> Done. All right. Nice. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in sixty seconds. Who steals the cake out of these two movies for the most ludicrous name? Mm, the names could have been sillier. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mentioned before Austin Travis sounds very American. <laughs> and the origins of that name for the script. Um, I mean, Johnny Boy is called Rat, so he's a, a potential one. No. None of them really jump out, do they? They're all no. pretty grounded. Yep, maybe. All right. Do we have to- maybe no one wins this one. We can. Okay. It'll just jackpot till next week. All right. <laughs> all right, moving on. The Memento Award, name for moments you completely forgot about and here rewatch these movies. Now, I haven't seen them as much as you have, so- I'll have to sit out this one, so I'll hand it across to you to name the nominees and a winner. I already blew mine. I already told you when Wishmaster turned up. Mine's <laughs> so lame. Uh, Done. Which which movie was that? Executive. In in in. Um, oh wow! Now I'm getting the movies confused in my head. 
Which one was Wishmaster in, Ben? I don't know. I, that that was the one that you named. Oh, I mean, I was listening actively to you, but <laughs> five, five minutes later, it just sort of. I uh, know it was Air Force One because he's playing a Russian, Andrew Divoff. Okay. So, so that was a nice little. You know, I've seen it a number of times, but I hadn't seen Wishmaster since I had seen it. So, okay, you know, I'm obviously going to try and think of another movie that came out the same year as Wishmaster. Maybe as a similar plot, so I can try and force you to do Wishmaster. Never happened. Don't hold your breath, people. Oh yeah, Um, I I'm not. (laughs) Good, good, good. Um, All right, let's move on. The Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a crop of clones as a new (laughs) subgenre. And this is perfect, Gabe. Because this award totally fits these two movies. So these two movies themselves were inspired by Die Hard. The question is, did either of these movies have a subsequent effect in having an influence on other movies? So it basically becomes like, mm. you know, like an influence on an influence. I don't know. I'd, I can't think of anything that jumps out. I mean, I can't think of any plain movies. I, I would say Air Force One definitely is the – heir to the Samuel Jackson movie Big Game where okay. the president gets ejected from his little safety pod, lands somewhere in, I think it's Norway, and a little kid protects him as he's on the run. A bit like that film Cliffhanger as well from the baddies. So those films share the same DNA. I mean, what about the Has Fallen movies? I guess they have a president doing a little bit of ass kicking, but oh yeah, he's not. Yeah, you're right. He's not really the main. Jerry's still the main character in. True, you know, although I would say though that that's 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 a good link. I'd say Air Force One has definitely got some heritage there that shares with those. Angel has fallen. Right. Uh, what's White House has fallen? What else? It's the third one. Angel uh, Olympus. 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 Olympus has fallen. Angel has fallen, and the middle one's called something else. London has fallen. There you go. London. Done. All right. It's come to that time of the podcast. The Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed Two, which took the high stakes of runaway bus on a crowded city and relocated to a sluggish cruise ship. So imagine this. Let's say we have an opportunity to make a sequel to Executive Decision or Air Force One. Now, they're both about terrorists hijacking a plane and the only person who can save the day is an unlikely hero. Mm -hmm. So which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to make it to the studio executive? Go. I mean, you can definitely believe that Kurt Russell's character in Executive Decision would go on to many more adventures, right? Like, Yeah, I think so. Like, Yeah. Whereas is it harder to believe that the president, I mean, it's not that much harder to believe because they actually did it in the movies we just talked about, uh, the Has Fallen movies where literally the president gets jammed up again <laughs> one year later. So, But would we believe that Harrison Ford as President James Marshall would find himself yet again in another situation? where he had to extricate himself and his family. Well, you've got the diehard model, right, where we see Jeremy Irons return, not return, but Jeremy Irons comes into Die Hard 3 as the brother of Alan Rickman's character from Die Hard 1. So Mm. you basically have a situation where, you know, the Gary Oldman's brother or something comes back to seek vengeance against our character here played by Harrison Ford. There's that version, but that's just basically Die Hard 3 with a vengeance. So, I mean, doesn't Die Hard 2 sort of lampshade this by saying, like, how can the same shit happen to the same guy? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. don't they even, like, really point at it? Yeah, they do. 
they hang a lantern, lantern, lantern on it, as you say, and yeah, yeah, that's fine. But then that film wasn't a success, and that was a while ago. Um, let's think about it. Air Force One was more successful than Executive Decision at the box office. Mm-hmm. Air Force One had a more recognisable star, but Harrison Ford has definitely aged out of this type of action role. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who would have thought, but Kurt Russell, as a result of doing a few of those Marvel movies and the Fast and Furious movies, that guy's got probably a lot of cachet right now. So okay. you actually bring him back to do an Executive Decision too, and he'd have box office juice. Mm-hmm. Uh the film did well enough in the first place to justify it. Mm-hmm. You could see how his career could have evolved, right? His career as an like as the character's career. I mean, hey, yeah, yeah. We talked before about how it doesn't really seem like there's much of an executive decision in the movie. What if we actually lent into that? And what if Kurt Russell's character taking a page from the uh, Clancy, what's his face? Uh, think has actually become president. See, you read my mind. You uh, read my mind. Snap. I was going to say. There we go. Isn't the logical sequel to Executive Decision Air Force One? <laughs> Absolutely. There you go. And that's how you make it. <laughs> so I reckon what you do is, what do you kind of like just lean in hard to the way that all these films inspired by Die Hard uh, jump from ships to planes to whatever? What if you have, say, imagine Under Siege, the, the first film, right, mm-hmm. where you've got Kurt Russell, who's now a senior-ranking intelligence official or maybe the president, mm-hmm. visiting a carrier mm-hmm. that's about to be decommissioned, which is basically mm-hmm. Under Siege 2, mm-hmm. and he essentially takes on the Steven Seagal role. I mean, it would actually work, I think. So you're, you're suggesting we kill, we kill him off in the first 20 minutes? No, Steven Seagal survives. No, I'm actually saying that he is the Steven Seagal character, ironically, in Under Siege. So, Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the Steven Seagal character in Executive Decision. No, no. So I'm saying you basically take Air Force One and you mash it with oh, yes. Under Siege and that's your movie. Now, this is getting so far up its own ass. It's perhaps a little bit too clever by half. But the other thing is you start just moving into different vehicles, right? You go to a spaceship, <laughs> right? So it's like now you've got, say, Kurt Russell – who's on the International Space Station and has to basically save the day. It comes basically the film Gravity meets Air Force One. <laughs> Why did they send the president to the moon? It's, it doesn't make sense. Uh, no, they, 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 they ejected him, right? He, but he got caught in the atmosphere. He went up. <laughs> I mean, fun. is there any form of transportation that they haven't yet really done well. I mean, like you said. Submarines. You pull back Wolfgang Peterson, who did Dust Boot, right? Oh, yeah. So The president's on a submarine. Okay. A submarine's being de- decommissioned. <laughs> He's going to visit it. Right. Or maybe a submarine's being launched. Right. Terrorists overtake the submarine. The submarine starts sinking. He has to jump into the little portal. <laughs> okay. Right. And it's just like Air Force One on a submarine. <laughs> okay. Uh, same shape, right? It's kind of similar. I mean, it's a bit more cramped, so you're not going to have the same sort of sense of space. But isn't a submarine basically the same dynamics as a plane? Like they could both get punctured and therefore lose pressure and you die, you're isolated, self-contained, you can't escape. I mean, a submarine, although it doesn't have passengers you can ransom, it certainly has nukes on board where if they, if, if you're villain... 
was putting a gun to the president's head and saying, I'm either going to kill the president or he can launch the nukes or something. You know, you've got it. It's all right there. It's all at your fingertips. Yeah, okay. Uh, is there any other angle we go to here? Well, we could also just not set it on a plane, train or other automobile. Okay. So Air Force One and Executive Decision are both famous for being you know, high stakes on a plane, but you just change the stakes to the ground, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the same sort of threat like Conair. Conair was set on the ground and this ex-general is going to possibly kill, you know, half the population of San Francisco with Sauron gas or something like that, and an executive decision has to be made as to stop him. There's that version. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you replace Sean Connery's type role with Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. In fact, isn't Kurt Russell just basically Nicolas Cage from The Rock? Mm-hmm. Yes, he is. Oh, yes, very. That's a good point. Like uh, they're both like he's a nebbish kind of analyst. He joins up with the macho uh, SEAL team uh-huh. guys, and they raid an island, mm-hmm. The Rock, mm-hmm. just like they raid the plane. Mm-hmm. So, so Michael Bain is Steven Seagal type thing. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, help me out here. I mean, I feel like yep. I feel like these films don't have natural sequels. No, I mean, you know, uh, maybe President Kurt Russell's at the Olympics and someone holds that to ransom. Uh-huh. I think the Olympics is awesome because it's been done before in real life. The stakes are high. It's like a UN setting, but international people there. In fact, mm-hmm. I always thought, why aren't there more films set at the UN? It's a very interesting building. It's in New York. Uh, stakes are high. We've seen a few films like The Interpreter with Nicole Kidman that's been there, but it's not a, a it's a location which I don't think is taken advantage of as much. You could have, say, Kurt Russell giving a speech mm-hmm. and it becomes Die Hard at the UN. There's an idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. What if he has to make the executive decision to order the military to blow up the UN building that where the attack is happening? It's, hold on. it's called You Under Siege. You Under Siege. I don't, it's, Very right. clever. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> and they, he basically says, I give you an executive decision. Fire the nukes now. Nice. Mr. President, Mr. President, we can't. You'll be killed, but you'll save the country. Wow, so the, the ultimate in sacrifices. It's possible. Thank you, President David Grant, for showing us all. Um, anything, anything else? Anything else? No, I, I think you're right. Like these movies lend themselves to, to sort of no sequel, but any sequel in a way. You know, it doesn't feel like there's a, there's an immediate hook at the end that would lead you to something obvious. At the same time, it's just a sort of jelly-like nebulosity. It's because the stakes are so high. The concept is so simple that if you just change the vehicle from a plane to a tank or to a boat doesn't feel original enough. And because the protagonist, particularly Air Force One, is so unique, it just feels like you can't double down that again. Yeah. Um, yep. It feels like you have to do something unique, like make it the Pope. <laughs> it's the Pope in a... Uh, Wait, what? So you're saying President Kurt Russell teams up with Jonathan Price as the Pope. It's an old man their fucking way out of something or other. Actually, 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 bear with me here. I was joking. Let's go with this, right? Okay. Isn't in the world one of the best figures that a villain would try and take as a hostage, the Pope? Think about racial or and religious divide around the world. Mm-hmm. I could imagine that being 
you know, possible in some sort of terrorist mind, right, you take the face of one of the most prominent religions in the world as a hostage and perhaps there's some sort of UN convention and the Pope is speaking and Kurt Russell has graduated from being an analyst to actually like a lead kind of executive role as head of the CIA or something, right? He's still a suit, but he's like at the top of pecking order. Uh-huh. And then he finds himself in a diehard situation with the Pope mm-hmm. and has to get the Pope out of the Vatican, a bit like films like, um, uh, you know, Da Vinci Code through like all those little secret tunnels and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, right. What do you think? Sure, Pope on a rope. I like it. And it's called Executive Decision, colon, Hail Mary. <laughs> nice. Okay, sure. Sure, why not? I like it. All right. And that, folks, is how you make a sequel to the Steven Seagal, uh, Kurt Russell classic from 1996, Executive Decision. Sure. Okay, that brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so fine. You can find Sam as at Showtown Sound on Instagram. Gabe, where can the folks find more of your work and thoughts this week? I mean, I suppose on Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. I suppose. Suppose away. And you can find me as at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Insta and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. You find this podcast and all the rest in the usual places like Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening, folks. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, share the word. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. Adios, Gabe. Sayonara, Ben. Sayonara, Ben.